You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to episode 100 of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host, Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. Wow. Who would have thought we would have made it to episode 100? We've hit the triple digits. Yeah, it's taken a little while. Um, I think the first podcast was actually released in 2013. Um, But yeah, we got there in the end and I'm incredibly uh, proud that we made it. And on that note, I I decided to do a special episode, and that's why I haven't published for a couple of weeks. I probably should have just carried on with a consistent publishing schedule, but I wanted to do something a little bit different. Um, So it was suggested on Twitter by somebody uh, that I do a look into the Olympic legacy, and I thought that was a great idea. So that's exactly what I've done. I've gone and spoken to seven different people uh, who were involved in the Great Britain 2012 Olympics program and kind of asked their thoughts on the Olympic legacy, and kind of done a super cut, um, compiling it all together, and uh, yeah, and, and kind of giving you your to giving you insight into their thoughts around uh, the the legacy uh, of the Olympics, what people hoped it was going to be, and how it's kind of ended up panning out. Obviously, from my own perspective, I had my own views, and and these conversations have actually changed that slightly uh, because I was given insight that I hadn't really thought about uh, before. So I'm I'm hoping it's going to do the same for you and provide um, deeper uh, analysis of the London 2012 Olympics and why it wasn't maybe the springboard that so many people expect it to be. I will do individual introductions of each person uh, as we go through um, the pod, but just to give you a brief overview now, uh, the people that I spoke to. Uh, was Ron Wuertila, Dan Clark, uh, Tim Lewis, Phil Waghorn, um, Tony Garbalotto, Warwick Can, Mark Clark, and uh, Mark Woods. Now, there were a lot more people that I wanted to speak to. There are other people that I put in requests uh, for interviews and haven't been able to make it happen, and I didn't want to put off publishing this any longer and just wanted to carry on uh, releasing these, these podcasts. So, there's a high chance we will do a part two. So before everyone starts coming at me and saying, where's this person, where's this person? And also I'm well aware that there is uh, not much representation from the uh, women's side. Uh, Be well aware that I am planning on doing a part two. So hopefully that's going to come. As always, before we get into the show, uh, please take two seconds to check out our Patreon account. If you've enjoyed the last 100 episodes of the podcast, if you enjoy the content we put on the website, on social media, around British Basel, please help us do what we do. Um, check out our Patreon account. There you can make a monthly or annual contribution for as much as you would like. You won't even notice the money leaving your account, but it goes a long way in helping us do the work uh, that we are trying to do to grow this British Basel media landscape. So patreon.com uh, forward slash hoopsfix. As always, let me know what you think. Uh, in the comments below if you're watching on YouTube. Uh, what do you think of the Olympic legacy? Has it turned out how you expect it to be? Um, where do you think we went wrong, if anywhere? And where do you think we got it right? Um, you can reach out to me on every single social media platform uh, at HoopsFix or you can drop me an email, sam at hoopsfix.com um, and there I'll reply to every single one. Anyway, that is enough from me. Uh, just quickly, a huge thank you if you have been a faithful listener, whether from the start or whether you've joined us more recently. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to be on this journey with you and I look forward to the next uh, 100 episodes. Anyway, uh, here's this week's podcast looking at the Olympic basketball legacy. 
We start off with Ron Wuatila in our Olympic basketball uh, legacy journey. He held a variety of roles with the British basketball uh, program from its inception, um, from the head of operations uh, to the head of performance. Also became the sort of North American player relationship manager at one point uh, and also did a bit of team managing. So yeah, had some really interesting insights. Uh, here is the first segment with Ron. Um Ron, so just for just for context for people, can we just start uh, just with an intro of yourself and kind of the roles that you held around the British basketball program in the run-up to the London 2012 Olympics? Yeah, for sure. So I had had moved to the UK due to my wife being transferred over there in 2006, right at the beginning of 2006. And I worked at UK Sport in a coaching development program for almost a year, about nine months. And as they were working their way through in the late winter, early spring of 2007, they recognized that I had a background in basketball and hired me at that time. My title might have been um, program manager, maybe, at the beginning. Ultimately, through those five years, uh, I ended up, I think my job title was uh, head of basketball operations. Um, and, and I think I had about four different titles. But ultimately, just one of the team, one of the team and certainly lead of the um, in the run-up through those five years from 2007 to 2012 uh, in leading the senior men's and women's programs and the under-20 men's and women's programs. So when you uh, first took on that role, I'm pretty sure it was, yeah, it was around 2007 that, that you were first hired, so you were kind of involved from the, from the very start. Um, were there conversations within the British basketball organization about you know, what can we do to ensure that the 2012 Olympics is not just a flash-in-the-pan, one-off event, big celebration and there's actually some long-term uh, legacy so to speak that persists after the olympics sure i knew you were gonna ask this question um the you know sam it's a great it's a great question and i am a, i'm a legacy guy i'm a in fact a bit of the work i've done since i left uh, the uk and, and left G, uh, gb has been around long-term sport performance um, but I can tell you at, at that time, the amount of work that needed to be done to get ourselves in a position to have our best players in place to compete in London was absolutely an, uh, not an overwhelming task, but a, a daunting task at times. So, and there was really no mandate that a... Um, longer-term pathway impact be, be left behind as a legacy. So I'm, I think it's important to say that out loud because that was the reality. Because in 2007, I, you know, I, I wish I had kept better notes, but um, it, it, was, it felt a bit like swimming upstream to get it going and making sure that the Luol Dangs and others were going to arrive and play and, cause at the, and it, who the coach is going to be. I mean, did you have all that in place? And so... Um, the answer is early on, the first couple of years, no, we didn't talk about it. Well, we talked about it because we wanted it to be, uh, we wanted there to be something left behind. I mean, Finch, Chris Finch, uh, and I talk, have talked many times about this, but we felt like we didn't leave behind what, what we should have. We should have done more, maybe ring fence 10% of our, uh, you know, our time, our funding towards that. But I, I, I think it's important, and I'm probably the one to, to say this, in those first 24 months, um, there wasn't much space to, to really think about that. But I, I think uh, if, if you look at in terms of legacy, like if you look at the women's program and what's happened in the last nine years, if, if, if people don't think that there was a legacy impact in the, 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 through the run-up to the 2012 Games, 
on the GB women's program. They're crazy. I mean, look at those what what those women have done um, internationally, and and so that's certainly a a, a point of pride uh, uh, for sure. But yes, yeah, I would have loved to have built um, something that that you know Germany or uh, Australia or Spain has in terms of path. Um, but that really wasn't in the mandate, frankly. I, I was wondering, like, around the Olympics, and even still to this day, that there's um, a kind of lot of conversation ar- around the difficulties of having the home nation for, uh, governing bodies and then the British Basketball Federation and both having, um, in some ways, obviously different goals where the British Basketball Federation has al- always been very much focused on the elite end of the spectrum and providing sort of these, these national team programs. And then the home nation bodies are, are being focused around grassroots. Did you feel that was a potential barrier where um, you could have been working together in some capacity to ensure there was maybe a level of crossover between the grassroots and then the elite? Yeah, I wish we would have done more. <laughs> you know, I wish we would have done more, you know, under 16 coaches, under 18 coaches, under 20 coaches, pathway coaches being exposed to what we were doing um, because if you look around the world, Sam, and I mean, you, you, know, you know the answer to this question. If you look around the world, the, the countries that are thriving in basketball relative to their assets, um, the Australias of the world, the Spains of the world, um, there's lots of examples, uh, they, have, they have thought this through. And their alignment between all of the situation in Great Britain with the home nations, right? But, but ultimately, alignment is alignment. And if you want to have a sustained in your sport and on your young people, look at the All Blacks. You know, one of the reasons the All Blacks work in rugby is that the the, the empire at the very top is in total control of everything: officiating, skill acquisition for kids who are six, seven, eight years old, what kind of competition takes place for the twelve or thirteen year olds, boys programs, girls programs, officiating, you name it. Um, and in Britain, uh, a lot of that is around relationships and trust and, and creating alignment where there, where there isn't naturally alignment in place. So I think actually it was, um, uh, it was challenging work at times. It is in any sport within in, in Great Britain, whether it's field hockey, rugby, football, you name it. But I think a lot of really good things happened uh, through those four years of bring, bringing Warwick on um, in, the, in the pathway role. Uh, he, he had a lot of, you know, He's, there's a legacy behind the work he did. Um, it just got started later, and it wasn't as high a priority. But ultimately, if Great Britain wants to take advantage of the assets that exist in that country, and there are many, <laughs> there are lots of assets there, that's the good news, then you need a longer-term sustainable plan to have all the different levels integrated. And it can't be, okay, we're going to take a run at 2020 and 2024, and we're going to go for the Euros this year. It's got to be, well, for the next 20 years, this is what we're going to do. When you talk about the things that you're proudest of in terms of the achievements uh, with the British Basketball Program, what would you say were the biggest successes from the you know the point of the program's inception, um, from when, when the Olympic bid was was won uh, through to the the London 2012 Olympics? Um, well, I'm going to start with the women's program. Uh, Mark Clark and the work he did at the front end of that five-year journey to um, create momentum and belief. It was incredible, uh, and that that and then with Tom Mar taking that program uh, into the games, uh, the work of Damian Jennings, Ken Shields, and and um, uh, Vanessa and, and others. That, that I'm really proud 
of, 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 that, of that work and being a part of that journey. Um, on the side, I'd say, you know, Sam, you can remember this. You might maybe not remember all the detail, but what I'm proudest of is, is FIBA kept moving the, the goalposts on us. You can remember that. So it was like, okay, well, if you get in, if you go from B to A, you can guarantee you're in London because it's the only team sport, as I tell people, probably once every five or six months, somebody asks me about my background and I tell them my story and, and that basketball is the only team sport that doesn't get an automatic spot for the home nation. Um, I'm proudest that we just kept going after it when they said, oh, if you go from B to A, you're in. Okay, well, now you need to go from A to, the, to Eurobasket, and we need a good showing at Eurobasket. Um, probably the single proudest moment I had was when uh, we beat the Czech Republic in whatever year that was, probably 2008, to qualify for Euro A, and I was walking down the hallway with Finch and told him that Israel or somebody had lost that night, and he didn't know, and we knew we had qualified for A. That was... You know, it has nothing to do with London 2012 and in terms of the time, but that was the, the highlight for me. Uh, they were moving stuff around, and, uh, and we kept going for it. And, and, and that part of, part of the frustration, uh, you know, you didn't ask the question, but part of the frustration for us around some of the development we wanted to do is that we would have been able to put more time in some of our young players in the run-up to the Olympic Games if we had just, like in 2008, if we had qualified, for, which we did, we qualified for A, and they said, you're good. We would have taken tons of risks in the next three years. We would have invested more time in some of the young players who needed the time, not just in training or time with Nick or Chris, but actually trying to execute under the most best possible. And we didn't get that. We didn't get a chance with, I mean, there were probably four young people who, young players who needed that, and we didn't, because FIBA kept moving the, the goalposts, we didn't have a chance to do that. And that, that, that hurt us come 2012 for sure. Yeah, that was literally going to be my next question where, you know, so so essentially you feel that because of that constant um, goalpost moving by FIBA, the focus had to be on actually qualifying for the Olympics and making sure that we had teams at the Olympics rather than being able to spend time and energy elsewhere in terms of looking at building out infrastructure and, and ensuring there was a sort of longer term legacy play in, in, in play. Yeah, and, and so um, absolutely. And, and I had just come from Canada in 2006, where I spent two years starting and building a pathway system in the province of Alberta for the top 30 male players, that um, to a certain degree, you know, still has a there's a it's a different format, but there's still the conceptual legacy of that program 15 years later. Um, so I had it in my mind that we could we could do something similar when I first took the job. <laughs> I, I had the I had the model. I had been through it. I had done the, the design, the build, the whole thing, where all the mistakes were made. But the pressure, Sam, of like, where are they really? Are they really going to take our spot away? And so, were we going to roll the dice and say, ah, we're not going to worry about qualifying for A, and we're not going to worry about this? We're actually going to put twenty percent of the money in the pathways, and then all of a sudden they say, you know what? You guys haven't shown you're good enough. We're going to put another team in because they felt if, if the leaders of FIBA or FIBA Europe felt political pressure. To, to pop us out, that was a real thing. So I think, I, I'm guessing people get, you haven't, um, and, and thank you for all you're doing for basketball in, in that country. Um, the historical intelligence you carry, with, along with others, is incredible. But that was a real thing. that we, we, we knew it was unlikely they would do it, but it was in front of us. And so we had to make sure that we kept performing and, and, and hitting all the roadblocks. I want to say that those goalposts probably moved about three times. Yeah, for sure. I, I remember it being a whole, it was a whole massive saga. And um, 
yeah, an incredibly frustrating, I think, for, for everyone involved. Uh, but, you know, and FIBA, I think, I'm sure I remember, Fee, Patrick, obviously, Patrick Bauman has now, has now passed away, so rest in peace, but, but I'm sure I remember him saying that there was, ne- you know, there was never any doubt, like, it was a case of we just wanted to sort of help drive British basketball forward. But ironically, having this conversation with you, I've never really thought about the fact that that actually uh, could have served as a hindrance to doing other things because of the fact the focus was, you know, having to, to, to qualify for the Olympics. Um Fascinating. So, so yeah, like just the, as we as we can't sort of, I'm, I'm aware of time here. So just just kind of like uh, as we think about wrapping up. But if you were to go back, knowing what you know now, um, go back to March 2007 when you were hired. Uh, what would you do differently, if anything, um, knowing how it's actually ended up panning out? Um. I would I would sneak into uh, I would sneak into the UK sport um, boardroom. I change the terms of agreement on the the finances of the of the uh, financial award we were given, and and write in at the very end that you must ring fence fifteen percent of all your money into the pathway system. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I honestly, I, I and we wanted to do it, and we actually, we you know, to be fair, Sam, we kind, we kind of did it, and some of the work that Warwick did, and then we did. I can't remember the name of the team, we, like the next generation team we did. F- futures. The back end. Of, futures. Yeah, I mean, like that was Warwick's baby, and Nick Nurse coached the futures the first year. Um, you know, I would have ring fenced it so that we had no choice, and and even though we went back to UK Sport and said, um, you know, FIBA's breathing down our neck here, we're really worried. And they would say, nope, we made a deal, 15%, whatever it may be. That would be, that would be it, Sam. I think it would be. But then I'd also beg and plead, um, not just Great Britain, but other, other West, it's, it's quite often Western organizations, Western society organizations, to not do funding based on small windows of time. And that, a, a small window is four years. You, you, um, you know, giving tips and saying, okay, you, you've got to hit these targets because you've got this many medals uh, at stake. Um, here's the money. Rather, let's look out 20, 25 years, and let's look at the impact that the investment we make has on um, thousands and thousands of kids. And being a team sport guy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak that language. You know, the footballs and the rugbys and the field hockeys and uh, the basketballs and the volleyballs where there's multiple young people playing these sports, those need 20-year plans. Um, chasing medals and chasing Euro championships one year at a time and celebrating that and then the funding goes away is no way to there's no way to uh, impact sports. And if you, you just, you know, around the world, there's great examples where people have really made a long-term commitment. So those are, those are the things I would, I would change. I wouldn't, you know, I have, I've had really cool conversations with Nick Nurse and Chris Finch about this and Tim Lewis. Um, you know, we, were re- we did a lot, and we were really close at the end. I mean, we, ha- we had some moments on the court that we would have liked to have performed better, but, um, you know, we climbed a small mountain. Uh, we just didn't get quite to the peak that we, we wanted to. Perfect. That's a perfect place to leave it. Thank you so much uh, for jumping on at, at such short notice as well. It's much appreciated. Um, and I think people will find uh, this insight uh, really, really valuable. Okay. Thanks, Sam. Appreciate it. I knew I had to get some player representation uh, when we're talking about the Olympic legacy. So we spoke to Dan Clark, obviously currently the Great Britain senior men's captain and has been a vocal proponent for British basketball in his years involved with the program, uh, doing more than just playing and making sure 
hold the British Basketball Federation to account uh, coming out and making statements uh, and being heavily involved on the administrative side of things to ensure that, uh, well, ideally the sport is is moving in the right direction. So I thought there'd be no better person to speak to. Obviously was involved as a player uh, in the Olympics and continues to play uh, to this day. So Dan, let's let's start with kind of a broad, broad question, sort of your overall take uh, on the Olympic basketball legacy, you know, do you think there has been one? If you do, what do you think is the is the legacy? If you don't, uh, why do you think that? Um, so I'd say the legacy. It's hard to put your finger on any point, any part of British basketball there where it's actually gone into it, apart from the fact that you've got you know the Lions playing at the Copper Box, which was obviously an Olympic venue um, and things like that. But in part, in terms of you know the the growth of the game and and the growth we're seeing recently. You know, with certain teams building their own facilities and stuff. I think growth. No, I don't think that's part of the Olympic legacy. I think that's something that was going to happen regardless. Um, you know, teams like Leicester, Newcastle, they're building their own facilities. I think their community program and their, the way their their club is structured allows them to do certain things like that. And I don't think the Olympic legacy has anything to do with that, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, from my point of view, from a player's point of view, I I do think the the Olympic legacy is a bit uh, non-existent, um, especially from what we were expecting going into the Olympics and what we we're expecting coming out of the Olympics. Obviously, um, the hope was that it was going to be like a big kickstart for basketball in this country, a big, you know, everyone together, let's push forward, let's do this, this, do that, and you know, let's really get basketball on the map. And that really, that obviously hasn't happened. You know, you know, we're what almost 10 years down the line now and, you know, basketball's, I would say it's worse off than it was before the Olympics, obviously, because the six years leading up to the Olympics, I think basketball was on, did have a bigger profile due to the fact that we did have Olympic funding, um, which, which after the Olympics, we've obviously lost. Um, but I think that's a whole different story, you know, to do with the, the funding situation. But I do think, you know, the, the lack of Olympic legacy within the basketball game in this country is you know has not been helpful and it's and I think a lot of people were depending on that starting the game you know giving the kickstart to, to the British game whether it be the league whether it be the national teams whether it be you know grassroots and I just don't think that's happened you mentioned it there like what was the mood amongst the players like in, in the run of 2012 like was there discussions amongst you guys that uh that you know that, that you that you felt like you're part of something special that could really um, make a difference long-term for Barcelona in this country. Was there discussions, I mean, even with uh, sort of the administration, like higher-up higher, higher up members of staff about what's being done um, to ensure there is a legacy or was it very much focused on, you know, you guys were just focused on playing? It was very much focused on playing, just focused on that moment in time, whether it would be the, you know, like the European championships building up to it or the the prep games or the, you know, these tournaments we'd play in and stuff like that. It was very much focused around the performance side of things. Um, I don't think the bigger picture was taken into, you know, taken into account at any time, really. Um, I mean, some people will say that some certain people within the administration used it as a, you know, as a jump start for their careers and stuff like that. I mean, it's a, it's a different opinion for each one there, but um but yeah, it wasn't really something that was discussed. I think everyone was hoping that it would kickstart the game and everyone was, you know, it was like the big, big dream and everyone was hoping this was going to happen. It was going to be the kickstart for British basketball. But no one really did anything to make sure that happened, um, which obviously you can see, uh, you know, in, in today's world that the basketball is 
pretty much, you know, without, you know, without the, the as I mentioned before, the, the growth that certain teams have had, but I think that was going to happen anyway, regardless of the fact whether there was Olympics or not, um, you know, it's happened. So, I mean, yeah, it wasn't really a big topic, I would say, when it was, you know, it was just like more of a, an afterthought, a dream kind of thing, I think, between the, especially between the players, like hopefully the league will grow, uh, considering, you know, the Olympics and stuff, and hopefully basketball will get bigger and stuff, but it wasn't, we didn't really put anything in place to make that happen. Do you feel like, uh, obviously, UK sport, you know, at that time, they've changed the model more recently, but but obviously in the run-up to that, there was the, their whole of no compromise approach, very much focused on winning, winning medals. And actually, you know, in their funding remit, you know, when they were giving out money to, to various different sports, there was no um, sort of stipulation that you need to ensure that you're doing stuff that's going to have a long-lasting impact on the game, like when you're talking about a legacy and stuff like that. Do you feel like that uh, played a role in terms of not forcing British basketball um, to have to do certain things to ensure that there was a legacy? Yeah, 100%. You know, I think, obviously, people involved, you know, even players involved at that time, including myself, you know, I think maybe we do have some, we do have a large short of the blame, but obviously UK sport is obviously our main source of funding, source of, you know, what we have to, we have to answer to kind of thing. And obviously, if we have to, if our, if your boss is asking you to do certain things and meet certain targets, um, you're going to obviously, you know, go towards doing those certain things. And if those certain things don't include, you know, after the Olympics, what's going to happen kind of thing, then it's not going to be of great importance. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's obviously it's, it's disappointing. And obviously, as you said before, like UK sport was slowly beginning to change the way they see things and the way they look at sport and certain sports in particular. Um, and hopefully that can for, you know, maybe not for basketball, for others, other the minority sports. Um, Hopefully that can that can force some change in the future for those sports, and hopefully basketball can find its way as well. You know, because um, obviously I do think it's it's on the way up and it is it is growing. Obviously, but obviously something after the Olympics with that with that kick that some we could have got from the Olympics would have been would have been great. You know, one of the one of the conversations that came up with someone else that I was talking to was that that you know uh, that they had no expectation that funding would be cut immediately uh, post because obviously straight after the Olympics that funding was cut right uh, to zero and then there was a whole battle going back and forth with an appeal and it was kind of reinstated but a, a, a much smaller percentage of, of what it was before. Kind of, what was your take on that? Like, uh, you know, were you at what point did you start realizing? you know, maybe there isn't going to be the legacy that we thought there was going to be um, and we're not going to have the long-term support that potentially we'd envisaged um, coming into the games? Um, I do think it was when that first announcement came out that we weren't getting any more funding, basically. That was kind of like, it was like a bucket of cold water on everything, obviously, because you've had, obviously, had the, the high of, of competing at the Olympics, you know, and everyone would, you know, everyone would say, well, did you, you know, did we do a good enough job at the Olympics? And maybe that, that source of funding that was cut was maybe due to performances that the men's and the women's team put in at the Olympics that, you know, UK sport didn't deem them fundable anymore kind of thing um, back on their old uh, funding scheme that they had, they had then. Um, but yeah, I mean, I remember that, that year after in 2013, which was the first time we came together again after the Olympics, um, you know, it was, it was different to say the least. Um, it was nowhere near the same. There's a lot of different, well, I would say there was a whole new 
hierarchy involved, um, a lot of new players, not young players, which at the same time was was part of, you know, you could say it's part of the legacy. You know, we had all these young guys coming through. Um, a lot of them had been involved in camps and stuff before, weren't necessarily involved in the Olympics, but, you know, it was, that was, that was, I could, I mean, you could say that that was part of the legacy, I suppose, was like the young players, you know, the Devin Van Oostroms, the Carl Johnsons and people like that that came through and played for GBR after the Olympics. I mean, that's part of the legacy, obviously, um, you know, because they did develop quite a few young guys and there was, you know, I think Chris Finch's coaching staff, you know, they did a great job in, in getting young guys into camp and, you know, getting them a view and an a early taste of international basketball. So from that point of view, I think we can, say there was some type of legacy but from from an infrastructure and uh you know stuff like that point of view it's it's hard to see any type of legacy yeah one of the um other sort of common themes that's come up is the <clears throat> fact that and, and obviously one of the things we've seen since the olympics um well in fact in, the, in even in the run-up to the olympics and then, and then post 2012 is is just the political infighting um in large part from having british bar operating in a silo as a separate independent organization um and then you've got the home nations and there's kind of been this weird kind of power struggle you know like do you think uh that almost wasn't well thought out when british basketball was formed to create great britain do you think there's a way that it could have been done um to almost involve to to almost have the home nations run it rather than it being a completely separate organization so that there was more synergy so that then you can engage the home nations and ensure that longer term there are there's and even at a grassroots level there's stuff being done and it's not just a, a pure where obviously british basketball's focus was purely on the national team so that was all that they were doing um but do you think that that could have been done in a different way so that we haven't ended up in this situation which even to this day where there's kind of this weird power struggle between the home nations and, and british basketball yeah, definitely. I mean, as you said, you know, I think the struggles are, are, you know, are still visible today. You know, you do hear of quarrels in between boards and in between home nations and someone's on one guy's side and someone's on another person's side and stuff like that, you know, which is just not good for the game. And that was obviously the, the origin of that was, you know, pre-2012, you know, when, you know, the Great Britain Basketball Federation was was formed and the way it was formed, I'm not sure of, of exact articles that are in the agreement, but um, it obviously hasn't been the most, hasn't been the best thing for for basketball in the UK. Not just for GB basketball, but for you know for England basketball, for Scotland basketball, for you know grassroots basketball, just hasn't hasn't really worked out. Um, and I think people's way of sorting it out as you know has been almost out of self interest and not out of um, out of the good of the game, basically, which is from a player's point of view, which has been one of the most frustrating things. If you could go back, knowing what you know now, and you advise if and you were advi- you were advising um, sort of British basketball, the people that are involved, uh, sort of in with basketball in, in the run up to the Olympics, and you wanted to do things to ensure that there was a longer lasting legacy, what advice would you be giving? What do you, what do you think are the main things that could have been done differently to ensure that you know we we didn't end up in a situation we've ended up in now, where essentially, as you say, you don't really feel there has been much of a legacy. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to pinpoint, you know, exact, exact thing. I think one of the one of the good things that we could have got out of the Olympics was, you know, the people that were involved. That I do think were very highly qualified and, and, and did a great job in many in many areas of that, um, especially from the performance side, um, which was a side obviously I'm more aware of due to the fact of playing and stuff like that. Um, you know, having those people stay over for a few more years, you know, to kind of have some type of transition into like another. Uh, 
period that you got, you know, so I suppose you can call it a period of time within basketball, you know, that I think that would have been helpful. And I think because it was almost like 2012 finished and then it was almost like a new federation was formed kind of thing. You know, there was there was no type of transition, no type of, you know, handover kind of thing. It was just like, oh, 2012 is over. Now it's 2013 kind of thing, Eurobasket, but you're no longer the GB, Team GB, Olympic team. You're now GB basketball kind of thing. And it was kind of two diff- completely different set, you know, different things kind of thing, which was, it was surprising. It was kind of weird at the same time. Um, so, I mean, that was, I, th- I do think some type of transition or handover, um, you know, or having people involved that were more, you know, that you knew were going to be around for longer periods of time, you know, it was, I think that would have been very handy um, to do so for. And I think there was, I'm not sure, obviously I'm, I don't know the ins and outs of funding, but there must be, a, there must have been a way to, to invest, you know, the, the, the large amounts of money that, you know, GB Basket was given. Um, looking forward into, I'm not saying obviously, you know, obviously the Olympics was the main focus, obviously, but I'm sure there was a small percentage that could have been put forward to, you know, the future kind of thing, you know, the future years, the future areas of the game, the grassroots game, whatever you want to call it, and however you want to distribute that money. But I'm, I'm sure there must have been a better way to, you know, to organise the, you know, the distribution of funds from the from the UK sport money. Yeah, that's one one of the things that actually came up was that if if there was more of a joined up thinking between the home nations and uh, British basketball, even if UK sport money was ring fenced and had to be spent purely on the national teams, um, well, actually, if if you let's say Basketball England were involved uh, in a closer way, well, they could have got access to funding from Sport England uh, to, to get access to capital grants to potentially get facilities built to ensure an Olympic legacy and kind of all tied up together. But that obviously never ended up happening because there was that. Um, sort of separation was it disappointing for you after 2012 that that so many people kind of jumped ship so quickly uh, and everyone kind of left or, or was it kind of expected you know we do see the thing is as much as it is easy to say you know uh everyone just left straight after the olympics they just wanted to come for the olympics actually i think in, in a lot of sports people generally do go and work an olympic cycle and then they'll you know look for new opportunities after they've done a four-year cycle and they're up to the olympics but um yeah, like, you know, when everyone, when it became apparent that everyone was leaving and it was literally going to be a pretty much a new organisation, and even from a player standpoint, uh, you know, a lot of players ended up not representing the national team again. Um, was that was that uh, disappointing for you? Did you feel like, um, did you expect people to hang around longer or, or, or was it kind of expected? Um, I wouldn't say it was disappointing, obviously, because as you said before, you know, it is still, uh, sport is a business, basically, and these people were looking for, you know, a few new challenges and stuff like that, which is completely respectable. Um, absolutely, you know, even from a player point of view, you know, people are free to make their own decisions. It's no, you know, you can do whatever, you, you know, you're free to do whatever you want, basically. Um, would I have liked certain people to stay around? Yeah, of course I would have. Um, it would have been great to, you know, to play a few more years with certain guys or to have some certain members of the hierarchy involved for, for, for more years. Um, but I mean, that's just the way sport is, you know, it, it's the way it works, the way, you know, well, for the good and the bad, really, you know, it's not something that you can control personally. It's just the thing, things that you have to accept and move on. Um, but I, I was, you know, as I said before, it would have been, yeah, from that point of view, it was disappointing that some people didn't stay around from just from the part of, from the point of view that it would have been, I think the program would have been a lot more successful if certain people stayed around, you know, and I think a successful national teams make, you know, means for a more successful game in this country. Um, and I, and I truly believe that and it's one of the reasons I play for the national team, no matter what, really. It's just one of the, I just think if you have a successful national team and you can see it in 
examples of this you know in Germany for example when you know they were very successful with you know with Novitski you know and they really built on that and now they have a very successful league and stuff like that you know I just think it once you have a solid base which is more than often is your national team you know it's a solid base to build from and make the game bigger and stronger and more important perfect that's a perfect place to leave it Dan thank you so much for taking time all right thanks a lot Dan Tim Lewis ended up being the sole representative uh, on the Great Britain Senior Men's uh, coaching staff. Uh, he was an assistant coach, kind of doing a lot of the scouting um, at the London 2012 Olympics. Unfortunately, he was not on the bench, uh, which we spoke about a little bit in this. But as you'll see, this was not an individual uh, specific conversation just about the legacy. This was a wider podcast, and this is a segment taken from it. Uh, the full episode will be released in the coming weeks. You mentioned uh, the Olympics there. That was something that mm-hmm. definitely, obviously, I, I wanted to speak about. Um, you know, the the like you you're unique in that actually on the men's side at the actual Olympics, you were the only British coach uh, involved on with the coaching staff. I'm I'm pretty yeah. sure, right? Yeah. Um, so Tony you know, was I, on the Tony was with us initially. Yeah. And then once we got 18 months out, something like that, Tony was no longer part of the that program he he had done some scouting so yeah. tony and i were the only two that yeah were sort of involved and then i met, was stay i mean we'll talk about the the beginning of the program in a minute but i guess just just on that note like when you talk about uh opportunities for british coaches and um and you know the london 2012 olympics you know we're obviously at home great britain team and on the bench uh, there aren't more British coaches. Do you feel like that is a failure on the administration's part or the federation's part of, of saying, of, of not making sure that there were more British coaches involved to potentially, you know, carry that legacy through and pass it on domestically so that we've got people with Olympic experience that are then able to give back to the country? Because, you know, the rest of, the, rest of those guys... Obviously, um, you know now they're doing they're doing great things, and but they're ultimately they're back in America and don't have a connection with the UK game in in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it'd just be interesting, kind of hearing your your opinions on that. Yeah, I think you know when we talk about ultimately, you know, we talk about the BBL as an opportunity, but ultimately, coaching national teams at the highest level, and I think we've seen it on the women's side as well. We should aspire to have British coaches coaching those teams. And, you know, when we, when we go back and talk about career paths and that should be part of our pathway, like we should be, you know, we should be looking to have somebody coaching our British Olympic team the next time we qualify. And so I think there was nobody at the point of the Olympics that we could have, I wasn't anywhere near ready to, to coach a team like that or good enough to coach that. And nobody else in the UK was. And, the you know, ultimately they went with people that had a UK connection. And I think they had two, we had two great coaches in terms of Nick and Chris. That I don't question or challenge and never have done because I think at the, the moment in time, we had the best possible people that were the two lead coaches. I think where we probably could have been better is had British coaches on the bench. And we had 
you know, a number of environments, a number of situations that we had people on the bench that weren't coaching or that really took places of coaches. And I think we, I think we, and I've openly talked about it with those people. I mean, we have a great relationship with all those. And I think we missed an opportunity there um, to put coaches in a position where they were on the front line and living it and then come back. But at the same time, we talked about experiences. Like nobody's ever come back to me as a British coach and then asked, hey, can you help us with pathways or can you help us with this? Since 2012, other than when Warwick was there, there's been no communication from British basketball. And I think that's a, uh, that's a factor now. I don't know whether that's because there are there's constant changes, people lose track of who people are, but there has to be experience in Tony coaching overseas and there has to be experience in myself coaching overseas, Chris Hackett coaching overseas in a different environment, but still a different pathway. How often do those people, how often are they reach, you know, reached out to? So I think ultimately there's a disconnect somewhere. Um, and I, is it because British basketball doesn't have basketball people running it? Possibly. When you've got people coming from different sports, they don't know the, the people in the past, the history, the whatever. Um, so I, ultimately I'd love to see British coaches coaching at that top level and that should be part of our pathway. And if, if it's not as the head coach, there should be somebody there as a, a lead assistant that's then able to take those experiences because I'm t those experiences, the Commonwealth Games, the, the, the Olympics, the European Championships, those are some unbelievable experiences that should be shared. What um, what made ultimately made you decide to step away from the from the Great Britain senior men's program after the Olympics? I so I had uh, I took an opportunity to go and coach in Germany, and the plan was to remain involved. I had a conversation with Joe Prunty to be on Joe's staff, and I. At the end of my year in Germany, I got an opportunity to go and coach in Japan. And uh, basically, British basketball said, well, you make a choice. You know, you stay involved with the British program or go coach in Japan. And if you coach in Japan, you can't do, can't come and be involved with that. So, Was that because of schedule clashes? I Yeah, you know, I don't know. I mean, it, I think it was partly down to timing, but... I'm not turning down the salary I was earning in Japan to go and earn $5,000 pounds for coaching with the national team. And again, it's just that it wasn't a full-time position. You know, we, what was it? We had four to six weeks. So I met, I met Joe and Warwick in London and it, that was going to move forward. And I've always been passionate about being involved with the national teams, but there comes a point where, you know, things can, so I, it just became, uh, you know, it was impossible for me to do it, basically. Would you like to be involved again in the future? Yeah, I'd love to be. I mean, I'd love to be involved in... Uh, I've always enjoyed being around the national teams, you know, from playing as a youngster to coaching regional stuff to coaching 16s all the way through the 20s. Um, and then obviously an involvement with the with the men's program. So, 
yeah, it's it's an opportunity that I would 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 relish being involved in again. I'd be interested to kind of hear your thoughts on Olympic legacy. You know, like you know, in the run up to the Olympics, that was the buzzword, and um, it was thrown around so often and so so much, and there was definitely. Uh, hope i think within the basketball community specifically that this was going to be the the match that lights the fire so to speak because we have heard for for decades about all this potential the sport has and this is going to be the opportunity where it's going mm-hmm. to be in front of millions and millions of bibles um do, yeah what's your take on the olympic legacy from a basketball standpoint like what would you say are the tangible um i guess things that have been left behind as a result of the olympics that wouldn't have existed without the olympics uh and do you think that there is the legacy that people or, or even you personally were, were ex- was expecting there to be uh, prior to the Olympics. Do you think that's what's actually ultimately ended up happening? Um, short, short and sweet, no. I don't think it. we lived up to what was expected. I think funding, you know, we should have siphoned funding that would have given us longer term um, ability to do things. I think... When I think of looking, well, when I look at legacy, the only thing I really see is facility, copper box. Um, We don't, there was no real legacy from coaching, carryover from coaching. There was, I don't think there was any real legacy throughout basketball in the UK. I think it allowed GB to continue to exist and run programs. Um, but I don't think the sport as a whole probably embraced it. You know, we've, you know, there's been pockets of money that have come and I don't know how those have been used and what's happened, but I think that would be the general population's view of a legacy. Like, I can't, to be honest with you, I can't even def- remember how we defined what that legacy looked like. But to me, when I look at it, we have a copper box where we play in London, which is not really a basketball facility. It, it does everything, but we're not playing. It's not created opportunities for us to play in European competition or at club levels. You know, we've tried and it's not been successful. Um, you know, has it has it has it boosted the BBL? I, you know, I've watched a couple of games this year online, and it, I don't know. It's is it is it the same basketball that we were watching five ten years ago, with the exception of a number of te- you know couple of teams. What do you think would have needed to be done differently in the run up to the Olympics to change the outcome? Well, I, I think to me the legacy is full time employment for. Like that's that's where you're going to underpin the success of the sport in the country. We can't continue to run it as a volunteer basis. I know we have areas that you know we have. You know, Barking has a professional environment, but they're employed through the school or whatever. You have a couple of academies that do that, but it's what we talked about earlier. The BBL has no full-time assistants, let alone two full-time assistants and a video guy and all the other things that you need to, to grow a club. And I think for me, legacy would have been about providing programs and pathways for coaching for the players. Um, 
which it may exist. You know, I'm not on the ground there, but I don't see any real evidence of that. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I, th- I think when I when I look at it, I'm, I'm like, I agree with you on, yeah, definitely the copper box is, 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 even though it's not a basketball-specific facility, it's provided opportunities that wouldn't have otherwise existed in terms of having a venue in London that's yeah. medium-sized that, that, yeah, obviously London Lions are playing out of it, so for them it's, it's unbelievable, otherwise yep. their options would have been slim. Um but I think the other thing is that the, actually the formations of, of the, the British basketball program as a whole, like that came about because of winning the Olympic bid, right? And before that, I, we didn't, well, not yeah. in the immediate years before, we didn't have senior teams that were trying to compete in European competitions and, and whatever. And since then, we've, you know, we're qualifying for Eurobaskets and, and doing stuff. So Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I think our younger s- groups, younger age groups have benefited from that. Yeah. That there's been a, a more directed program with, with GB. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I still think, as you say, that there's a, a lot more that could be done. And, and definitely from, I, I remember so clearly, do you remember the, the London um, test event, the sort of the invitational tournament that was, that was done, the sort of, I think it was like the yeah. November before in 2011. Yeah, we had Lithuania there and... China. China, um, that's it. Yeah. yeah, and it was like, I remember going there and just being blown away by the amount of media that was there. And I was just, because, mm-hmm. you know, I'd been used to going to basketball events and I was pretty much the only one there with maybe Mark yeah. Woods and, and Rob Dugdale, you know. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, everyone's everyone, everyone's fighting to try and have a conversation with people and there's TV cameras everywhere. And I was just like, if the Olympics is going to be, what well, this is just a test event. The Olympics is going to be this times 100 or whatever. Um, you know, basketball has the potential to be in front of millions of eyeballs uh for you know over the course of two weeks on on a regular basis this could really change a lot um but at the same time i i do remember thinking in the run up to it well to capitalize on that potential interest that's going to come off the back of the um added exposure and and, um media visibility there needs to be an infrastructure in place to be able to support that potential interest and that would have needed to be done in the run-up to the olympics the years before preceding it you know like if all of a sudden after 2012 hundreds of thousands of kids suddenly decided they want to play basketball well actually if they'd flooded the clubs that has existed the clubs would have been overran and wouldn't have actually had the capacity the number of coaches to be able to support those kids and it's mm-hmm. something that you know it's almost like when the bid was won that was when the stuff needed to start being put in place and said okay best case scenario let's say that 2012 leads to this much interest in basketball um yeah. this is what needs to be done now to ensure that we can then capitalize on it and and that i don't think that work was ever really done and and then obviously there was that spike in interest never really happened in, in the same way. So, and I think that probably fell between, it was almost like in no man's land because you had England basketball, then you had British basketball. British basketball was focused on all this stuff. British basketball was focused on this stuff and it never really kind of, you know, yeah. there was no cross-pollination. And it, things like that just got, visions of that just got lost. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, and of course there was always... And to this day, there's the, the, the sort of the politics between the home nations and, and, and the British Basketball Federation. And, and I think because there wasn't that, um, as you call it, cross-pollination or a sort of coordinated approach of saying, OK, you know, we're Basketball England, Basketball Wales, Basketball Scotland, and we're taking care of the grassroots. Um, but how can we tie in with you as the British Basketball Federation to ensure that this sort of elite end is is uh, connected to the grassroots? And, and I don't think that work was ever done. And those conversations were never had in a way to ensure that... Um, the Olympics was the success that we would have all wanted it to be from a basketball standpoint anyway. And obviously that's in, incredibly don't, frustrating. Don't you I think, think that that uh, sort of mirrors 
what goes on in the UK in general. If you just take London, for example, and all the all the clubs and the talent. I mean, I remember sitting down with Lawal at one point and talking about let's let's look at like one team in London with hubs where we're feeding the best players and the best players, like we talked about that Serbian sort of, but London has always been so disjointed about this is my, I'm doing this, this is my team. This is, and so we miss, and I say we, I think players miss out on so much because we're, ne- we're not connected. Next up is Phil Waghorn. Uh, he was the only uh, British person that was on the bench at the London 2012 Olympics with the men's program as the team manager. So we saw a lot of things behind the scenes. Um, so we kind of had a conversation with him about his take, uh, the, the, the conversations that he was privy to around the Olympic legacy and what has happened and what has happened since um, with regards to ensuring uh, there was lasting impact from 2012. Phil, so can we just start with context of people, um, kind of uh, what your involvement was, what, what your role was uh, with the GB program uh, in the run-up to 2012? Yeah, I was, uh, actually I applied for an ad as they looking for an assistant team manager at the time. Uh, I think they'd done the first year of the program in 2005, 2006, somewhere around about then. And obviously, I think the realisation is what was required when you're out on the road and what was needed to get a team of 25 people around the, the world was a massive role for staff and they obviously expanded in terms of that so my my role sort of changed over the years building up to and including the olympics but was dealing with equipment dealing with traveling logistics um you know being the guy that found things that players needed when players got to games and didn't have stuff that they should have had and all sorts of things from helping on court to just an encompassing role. I always say to people, it's a bit like, you know, if you imagine taking your family on a a summer holiday and you get on the plane and the logistics of sorting that first travel day out is a massive thing with young kids. Uh, Not that our players were young kids, um, but uh, it's having 25 people and doing that and doing that every other day or doing that over a period of time just threw up so many logistical things. But I, I thrived in that sort of environment where you had to sort of think on your feet and adjust on a day, daily, hourly basis sometimes and get things sorted. Great fun times. Obviously, you know, you've been involved with basketball for, for decades. Um, kind of at the time, you know, when when you heard of us winning the Olympic bid, knowing that potentially we were going to have Great Britain teams at, the, at London 2012, um, kind of what was your expectation and, and what did you feel the expectation was of, of, I guess, the British basketball community of the impact that the games could have on basketball in this country uh, in terms of longer-term impact and potentially, you know, uh, well, the change that it could have on, on the game here? I think that's one of my things. I mean, I think at that time, I'd, uh, I was a development officer in Sussex at that point uh, and I was working as assistant coach with Nick Nurse at the Bears in the last year that they um, sort of went ahead and... That sort of year, uh, I best sort of cemented where I thought we were at. I've been through the sort of troughs and highs of English basketball over a number of years. I've seen the Bears fold previously and play somewhere else. And, you know, it received big money on Sky at some point. And then I saw Nick struggling, somebody with Nick's calibre of, you know, as a coach and as a hard worker, enthusiasm person, seeing how difficult it was for him to actually make a financial go of a club in the UK. Um, and seeing that sort of come to an end around the same time as I started this role, I it was something I wanted to be involved in because I believed it was possibly our last chance to 
get the sport to where I believed it could get to in this country. And I've always been somebody that didn't want to sit on the fence and say, oh, we should have done that, we should have done this. I wanted to be there involved in whatever capacity I could uh, and help move the sport forward. And also from a personal perspective, I believe that it was um, going to be the best sort of learning curve in terms of like a live basketball clinic, in terms of being around the highest level that you could within the game. Um, and I certainly went into it believing that that this could be the event that pushed us up as a sport through, you know, the media recognition, because we always struggled to get games on TV um, and things like that and, and, and some experiences that you learn. I mean, I remember being in Lithuania looking at, uh, we were searching out the venues for the European Championships and we basically went around the counter centre that they were being built and we were looking at showers and, you know, doing interviews on, on, on TV with Lithuania. We went back to the hotel and there it is on sort of primetime Lithuanian TV, you know, what do you think of our showers and changing rooms? And there I am thinking, we can't even get our games on TV at the moment. You know, can, can we make that sort of a push for the sport it'll have to be on because the olympics they'll have to show it you know we we brinked on the teeter of um you know we, we were very competitive we, we pushed the sport up and you know we lost to spain by one in the olympics we were up there against australia and things like that and i did believe that the whole event could push us up as a sport having been there and involved i i think it's a bit like i seen with brexit now where there was a lot of talk about what would happen with Brexit and, and was sold to a lot of people. But I don't think the detail was ever actually laid out. And I think that was something with the GB sort of legacy. Was there ever documentation that said this is what basketball was going to actually put in place or what any sport's going to put in place? Because I read up on it the other day, actually, and it, it, it sort of said that most sports didn't really achieve. Some actually dropped after the Olympics. You know, they had that initial hit and then they dropped after that. And I think that's something that um, we... I think the whole country missed the boat on that, but I think that's an English thing in terms of the way we are with sport. We, we, we talk about it, but actually do we put the things in place? You know, were they going to build facilities that kids could go and playing after the Olympics? Were they, um, were they going to make massive changes? And I think it's possible, but I don't think we quite sort of got there in that, but I, I think we hit the buzz. I mean, I'm what we, we rode to 23rd in the world for the men's basketball at that point. Um, and I think Chris Finch would always say it was about the idea of, could we become really relevant if we'd had that knockoff of beating Spain or done Australia, done one of the big countries in one of those games that we were really close to? I think you would have seen an, potentially another jump in the sports recognition. I was going to say that maybe you kind of answered it in that question. Like, what is your take on the Olympic legacy? You know, when you when you look, you know, here we are nine years later. Um, yeah, what, what's your opinion on it? Do you think that there's been an, a, a, an Olympic legacy for basketball? I. <laughs> I said there, I think I query the way we work for legacies. I actually, before the, it must have been about the same time, 2006, I, uh, as development officer, I was called into, or I was a part of a meeting in Brighton. The council booked out the Grand Hotel. It was, you know, it was a massive event, invited all sports people in there. And it was all about the legacy, what was going to be the legacy for the area from the Olympics. And, you know, I don't know, I talk a lot of rubbish sometimes and we were around tables and they said, you know, any ideas? And, I don't know, I was actually sort of saying this was going to happen, but I was trying to get the idea that we need to think big and tangible things. And I said, you know, why don't we rebuild the West Pier and make it an Olympic Hall of Fame? You know, and, and a councillor said to me, you know, don't be so ridiculous. And I was sort of, OK, well, what are you thinking then? He said, we need to get more volunteers. And I was a bit like, we're going to do that anyway. You know, every summer when Wimbledon's on, I, I play tennis for two weeks and everybody loves it and then people stick at it. But, but for that, a short period of time but what was actually going to be the things in place that were there 
when everything finished, you know, were there going to be facilities to play on? Were there going to be more proper outdoor courts rather than just individual baskets? You know, but is that the way forward in a country that hasn't got the climate to play outdoors? Um, so I think, again, we, we we missed that. But I think you also have to put in perspective that we, we actually came from a really low point prior to the Olympics and, and, and prior to the, the, the 2006 when the programme was put in place. I mean, I think, you know, if I'm right around then, I, don't, I can't remember if it actually happened. I think it did, didn't it? Where, you know, to keep it basketball England on track, they sort of put hold on the national teams for a bit. Uh, you'll always talk to the players at the time where they got left in countries at different stages and, um, you know, found it difficult to get back. I remember... Um, actually being at a camp with Mark Dunning, I think, and Tony Garbaletto phoned up the first year of the programme. And I, I, I maybe have the numbers slightly wrong, but I reckon they had six or nine at the GB trying camps for the first year in 2005. And, um, you know, they were rallying around for players. But by the end of the programme, we had to choose players for training camp because it was so popular that players wanted to play. So I think you had areas like that that did make a, a stunning improvement to it. I think you have to bear in mind that, you know, Actually, the first goal of the programme was actually to get into the Olympics, although there was a lot of talk of it. I believe it wasn't till around March 2011 that it was actually confirmed that we were actually in. And I think even then there were still some issues with Wales sort of coming on board and the whole process long term. So, you know, it's great to say that's it. But, you know, being in the programme, it felt like, I mean, we were told we had to be competitive. Uh, we were told that we had to then get in Division A. We were then told we had to make the European Championships. Then we had to do it again. You know, it just the, the goalposts kept changing. And I think we would have been wrong. You know, where would we have sat now if, if actually the programme hadn't got to the Olympics? And I think there's a big part of that that needs to be remembered. Um, I think, you know, I, I think the background, the, the organisation itself, probably again they would probably sit there the people there would say their focus was to get us to the olympics and do that program and again i query where the actual sort of documentation on what the legacy was actually going to be was everybody wanted one but i don't know i don't know i was in there i don't think i ever saw a document that said by the end of the olympics we're going to have done this this and that um and i say to people i mean i'm not i don't know i'm not trying to lead anywhere with this but I was the only staff member on the men's basketball program that was actually actively coaching or doing something in English basketball after the Olympics. So any experiences that have been seen there shifted out of the country, uh, and some, some accidentally, some deliberately, and I, I think we could have done better around that side of it. Um, and I think my probably dis biggest disappointment with that side of it was probably I felt everything sort of stopped and started again after 2012 rather than it was a building point to then jump further because we would have all wanted to meet USA in a quarterfinal or something. But like I said, you know, God, we're one point off Spain. We're, we're actually doing a pretty good job against Australia, but had our probably first semi-meltdown as a team in the second half there. Plus, at the same time, Patty Mills dropped 39 points and I think shot five from seven, and that's when he went to the NBA for his first year and has had a career since then. So things like that you don't know at the time that are going to go through. Um, but I don't know if that's clear. I, I think I think that's something we do as England. The English sport is, we, you know, we do it in football, our biggest sport. We talk about it, but do we put things in place? When the USA struggle, I think their women struggled at one point, or the men, they then do training camps and put the players in and, and make a change. And I think we... We want a change, but do we actually put that change in place? 
Yeah, one of, one of the th- interesting uh, points that, that was raised uh, was in one of the other conversations that I had was uh, obviously UK Sport, who, who funded the British basketball programme, you know, to the tune of nine, 10 million uh, by, by the 2012 Olympics and more after that. But their, their no compromise uh, approach, which was very much focused on, on medals and everything else, there was no remit within that money to say, you know, you need to ring fence part of it to ensure that there's a legacy, to ensure that um, there's support for the next generation coming through. It was very much about performance and, and uh, well, the, the the performance of the national teams specifically in, in, around the Olympics. And as a result of that, um, exactly as you say, almost, there was no... Yeah, there was no briefing of saying you need to be thinking about kind of what's next and what's afterwards. And as a result of that, if that's not being by your funders, that's not being talked about and not being asked to be a focus. Um, why should the British Basketball uh, Federation make that that a priority? Like, um, it's a it's a yeah, it's a bit of a tricky situation because because then it sort of relies on people to do it off their own, yeah. I guess, moral integrity to believe that it's the right thing to do for the sport. And I think you know you have to get. I mean, I went to Lithuania to to check out these facilities again. And I was taken into three massive, um, you know, uh, city halls with the mayor of three different cities, introducing us all to the Lithuanian European championships and telling us how basketball is a religion in our country. And you're sitting there thinking, whoa, we're, you know, then you've got Sabonis as their lead of delegation, um, you know, and the stories that he can tell around the sport. And you see where we sat. I remember playing Macedonia, I think it was in Newcastle. And I, I, I don't know if it's 100% true, but the stories at the time came around that basically their guys were out in, in the nightclubs the night before the game, sort of saying, well, we play GB tomorrow, you know, no problem with them. And, you know, we went out and beat them. But you then look at the response to that. We went to Macedonia and we were in a, a sort of 6,000 seat arena with 10,000 spectators, people in the aisles. And I remember Chris saying, uh, we're in the changing rooms and he says, you know, if, if any of you are sort of delicate about the, the way people react to you, don't walk out on the court alone. I walked out on the court an hour before the game and got booed to the point of, I was just carrying a bottle of water, you know, and it was unbelievable the the sort of reaction and the passion for what was going on within the sport um, and that side of it. And I think, you know, you've got that the world over. I saw that when I went to the States for the first time as a kid and suddenly I'd gone from the strange guy who shot basketball in the gym on my own in the UK to being, this is a standard thing that everybody does. Uh, And I think if you haven't got that in your culture, it it, it also makes it a, a tough thing to, to shift and I, I think that's the thing that's been a big disappointment to me in a way is that we we haven't I don't know if we've been able to shift basketball up the cultural list I mean there's a lot of talk at the moment again a lot around you know affecting young people and getting people off the streets and doing that side of it and that's always been in there as a sport as a part of the sport but I also think the sport sits there in its own right as something that engages people across all sort of walks of life when you talk about the cultural thing like do you think that also the scheduling, uh, especially of the men's program, um, in the run-up to 2012, meant that there really wasn't that many opportunities uh, for fans to see them um, outside of the Olympics? You know, like it was well, training camp was in Houston for goodness yeah. sake. Which, which you know, in retrospect, well, even at the time, it just seemed a bit ridiculous. Like, why are we why are we taking the, the team who are playing on their home ground, who 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 want to build a fan base and connect with the fans? <clears throat> Um, taking them out of the country, playing all of that, excuse me, <coughs> taking all of, uh, taking them 
and then playing their, playing their games in Houston where, where fans can, can then not watch. I don't even think they were streamed at the time. Like, um, And that was a repetitive thing. I think outside of the outside of 2010 when the Eurobasket qualifiers, uh, oh. there was a really good tour of the country that was done. When there were, That was the game in Newcastle. There was a game in, in Liverpool, in, in Birmingham, um, um, where there, there seemed to sort of... Yeah, that, that was made a point of doing. Yeah. Outside of that... <clears throat> There were very few opportunities for fans to see the Olympic squad um, uh, in in home games. Do you, do you feel like that? If if that had been changed and they were they were more around, more visible, that could have changed things as well. Yeah, also, th- in terms of access to the press. Yeah, I think we did. I think there's some issues around it. I think the first issue was I think there was, when you looked to the initiation of the program, I think it was the right thing to do to set up an independent group to run the national teams. I don't think the governing body can be all encompassing and deliver development. You know, uh, national. National League programs and high performance stuff. So I think that was right. I think what we what wasn't probably done well enough is that the group that led that didn't then re-engage the right areas of the Basel community. Uh, I'll give you examples. Like I I said earlier on, I went to Turkey and we we played a tournament and just saw how slick it was and and the the everything was provided. You know, you turn around, kids have got water for you, towels for you, all the details taken care of. Um, but in the UK games, we had our our events were really run by a uh, an events agency that I didn't, they didn't really have the basketball expertise. It was uh, fast track, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I'd always, I'd always, I pushed early on and said, why don't we let the clubs do it? When we go and play in the club's venues, why don't we engage the, the clubs like that? I noticed years later, they did actually do that, but it was quite a late thing to do that from, from there. I think your point about where we played, I think you've got some, some varying issues in that if I'm, if I'm right, what I was sort of hearing at the time, I mean, it actually crazily became cheaper to do the stuff in the States sometimes. You, you, uh, we, we dumped the first year I got involved, we went to the IMG Centre in Florida uh, where you could actually house the players on site, take them from venue to um, think, cut down a hell of a lot of travelling time, which, I mean, one of the years we were at Brunel uh, and had to stay near Heathrow uh, and then bus everybody out every time. And the same thing, we found, we found a base at Cobham for a period of time. Uh, I think you've got some issues maybe because the players are coming home as well for the first time. Sometimes they're more likely to engage off-site with family members and not that you don't want to do it, but they may get distracted by that side of it. So I think probably when you throw all those stuff in the mix, and let's be honest, a, a high percentage of the players were states-based as well because they'd gone college and now lived out there. So I think there are some some reasons behind that. I think you're probably right in the engagement um engagement back as well but again you probably start to get into the initially the idea of i don't know everything that's available are the facilities available at the the level that you need to play in um you know are they close enough to hotels and that side of it and that that was quite something that did sort of certainly affect the program it being honest it was really slick and easy when we did our training camp at img um and a lot less hard work in terms of the mobilization of the whole program and the same thing at Houston, you know, where you've, you're training in the facility, the weight rooms are all in the same place. Um, you know, you're not having to move players around, but there is that probably, like you say, the, the, the it has a hit on the engagement of the, the actual program. Um, and I, I think it's a fine, fine balance in terms of, in terms of that. Um, but then you, I don't know, I always worry in our countries, whether we really, really do it. I mean, I, we would walk through Israel Airport and it would take us an hour and a half to get out the door because 
peop media people that we haven't even met were just mobbing us and you know wanting to talk to pops luau and you know anything that goes i can remember being there and be, you know at the changing rooms and some guys like give me something i want anything luau dang anything anything and i haven't really got anything you know there's a sock i love it give me the sock you know and it's like you think What's, what's that happened in the UK? You know, we and getting on the bus in Bosnia, and we're sort of forcing players onto the bus through crowds, and we we arrive at Heathrow Airport, and we fall out in ten minutes. Um, nobody there, and it's sort of the old thing. People say, "Oh, they're big. I wonder if they play basketball." You know, and, it, and I don't know that. I think we're guilty of it. I mean, I don't know if you. Don't, I watch all the games online at the moment, and sometimes I'm seeing you know NBL games with fifty people watching, and I'm thinking, okay, maybe there's a family, but if you know, I don't know if a Worthing Thunder had 500 spectators. Shouldn't that number start to be hundreds watching games online? So I think we're guilty as a basketball community as whether we engage ourselves and really push it back as well. So it's a tricky one. And then finally, uh, knowing what you know now, kind of how, how it's all panned out, if you were to go back uh, to when we won the bid and kind of if you were in sort of a controlling uh, sort of uh, position what would you be advising uh or, or saying that the british basketball federation needs to do to ensure that there is a bit more of a longer term impact uh, from the london 2012 olympics well i've always felt over here that you i mean you started to get it now with you know leicester newcastle or bristol have talked about it i mean I, I think facilities is a major issue in terms of clubs having that access to it and having that control of it whenever i've gone to any level of stuff in Europe, the, the clubs have generally got control of the facility that they play in or training and seeing, I don't know, when we were in Belgium, when Chris was there and, you know, he's, they've just got, it's not, it's not pretty, but they've got a purpose built arena that's theirs and they've got a training facility out the back. There's, there's the, the costs to, to people trying to get involved in the sport are then, you know, very negligible. You get it all the time with European coming over here, European players from any country. I was talking to a lady yesterday who, um, the, the connections Latvia and Albania her husband's from Albania and she's Latvian and they, they're talking about you know we don't we just don't pay for sport at the young level they just get to do it um, and I think there's no doubt that's that's something that we, we I mean we did it at the Olympics so at the Olympic at the Olympics we had a purpose built or not purpose built we, we changed a leisure centre outside of the village into a basketball court for our home training venue because it, the, 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 something the performance staff knew was that accessing the facilities for training during the Olympics were actually quite difficult and affected when you could you only got your 90 minute slot and stuff like that so it was built into the program that we had this facility that would be something to me that you know needed to be built into the program that that this was going to happen afterwards I think the coaching side of it is, is, is an issue you know I don't I think we could have looked at how we engaged a, a you know, a range of British coaches within the process that are, at the end of the event were still there. I know Chris would always talk about it. He, 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 I think some changes were forced on him. If I mean, that's that's my feeling from within. He was quite happy with a lot of the British staff that we had, but there was always a talk about people have got to be world class. And when we our debate was always, well, if we haven't been to the Olympics yet, does that mean we're just not world class? As soon as we go to the Olympics, are we automatically world class because we've been there? And I think we should have done better at keeping that but also engaging the people we had let's be honest I mean I could have told you around that time that Chris and Nick were going to be in the NBA at some point um, I don't think we fought to keep those guys involved I, th I think Chris was pressurised to run things a certain way and, and, and if people really knew the detail of that I mean w when we lost our funding um, and I was trying to I was trying to speak in the background and say what can we do to get it back 
um, or what can we do? And I, I, I was communicating with Chris Finch and he said, you know, if, if the organisation reaches out to me, I'll, I'll coach for, for pretty much nothing. You know, I, I don't think people realise maybe how invested people like Chris, Nick, you know, Tony, me, whoever, you know, were it, Tim Lewis, you know, all those people in the programme and, and what, what people would do to make it sort of work in terms of that. And I think, I think we could have done a, a better job around that to have, I mean, it's something that was said to me. I mean, I've, it was, I mean Chris, Chris Finch again said, you know, would you, would you do a job in the British, in the office if it came up? And I said, yeah, anything that could help the sport, because I don't think we've actually had basketball people in the office. You know, we, we'd had things whereby people were doing the job that they went, but most people f- from that six year process have moved out the other end um, not, nothing against them. They were doing the job that they were employed to do, but were they going to be there anyway? Would, would, have you got people that were going to be basketball lifers within the UK? Um, and I think we missed a, missed a trick on that and, and should have, I mean, you know, you, you've got those two coaches, you've got Duncan French who now runs the UFC in the States. You know, you, you, it was obvious that we had high quality around it and could have utilised that better. Um, and, I think you know I'm I'm a little bit disappointed that there's nothing, you know, there's nothing left. I I've got nothing against any nationality or anything, and we need to use some expertise. I mean, that happened to me as a young player years ago in the in the English leagues, where initially you got a lot of Americans running the teams. Back in the sort of eighties, every team pretty much had an American coach, but the smart clubs put assistant coaches in places in place that then became the head coach and learnt from that process. And I think that's something that I would have liked to have seen. Um, a, a better job done of in, you know working through the basketball community and finding out the people that could jump to the next level for whatever reason and and and, and having a, a pool of that rather than you know I don't know they, there was a lot of put into somebody like Damien Jennings in the women's program but I mean again what they all had to do go abroad to to then ply that trade that they've they've learned and I think we all know that unless we can get a, a strong structured league in the uk that financially enables players to stay consistently we're we're always going to lose our expertise to to areas just on a financial basis uh, i mean covid's obviously influenced it a little bit where players have probably stayed because of that but i go back to my early years and think i came back from the states in or, or show me age two, 1984 to play at the bears uh, who had 100 grand sponsorship from nissan at the time now I should imagine that hundred grand sponsorship still sits pretty high in the BBBL, wherever we are now. If that was the main sponsor for somebody, um, but as a kid, I was able to basically make my way in basketball, play, and see the next progression in the team. Which we, to me, I don't think we've been able to create that. You know, I don't think there's many young. I mean, obviously Cameron's playing the BBBL, but that's a a young kid playing for nothing. You know, advancing his career. There's not. There's not loads of examples of young players on the track to being professionals through that structure, which is something we would have probably needed to do. Yeah, people teach it like Jamal Anderson. He was, you know, on the 20s at the time and got involved with a senior program and has, and has stayed in there from that. But I don't think you've got mass numbers is what we sort of need from that side of it as opposed to individuals. Yeah, that's a perfect place to leave it. Phil, thank you so much for taking time. Much appreciated. No problem. Good to speak to you. 
Next up is Tony G, Tony Garbalotto. Uh, he was involved with the Great Britain senior men's coaching staff in the run-up 2012, but unfortunately did not make it uh, through to the Olympics. Um, but of course has become the Great Britain senior men's coach since, uh, was involved with the program and has been a vocal proponent of British basketball uh, in all the years since 2012, been heavily involved uh, for, for decades. So um, yeah, had some really interesting insights and was definitely worth talking to him about the London 2012 uh, legacy. Tony, so can we just start uh, just by giving people a bit of context to your involvement uh, with the Great Britain program in the run-up to the London 2012 Olympics? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one. Um, actually, I was I just just as a real bit of context, I was actually standing um, in one of the uh, exhibition halls at XL when we won the the, the bid. Um, I was working with my own company at that time and was was at Hackney Academy. And, you know, it was obviously the euphoria of that was incredible. And so once that happened, I think, I don't know how many months later, six months or, you know, eight months later, they decided they were going to start really working on each of the sports. British basketball was formed. Um, and then obviously Chris Finch was approached to be the head coach of the, of the team. And one of the things that I will always um, respect, you know, not fully understanding, you know, Chris you know, Chris Finch asked me to be the first assistant coach um, at that time. Um, I think Chris, you know, saw that I had a lot of, you know, experience both as a coach, but more importantly, um, could really understand and how to, to, to do a lot of the logistical side of the program in the early days. So, um, yeah, so Chris asked me and then, I, I, you know, he obviously asked um, Tim Lewis. So we were the first staff. Um, and I believe that that was, I think, in 2007, um, 2008. My mind is uh, clouded um, by the exact dates of those uh, those staffs and those first games, but that was how I first came to be part of that staff. Obviously, yeah. So you, you were involved from the early days. I mean, I guess starting with a pretty broad question, but here, here we are nine years later. Um, you know, what would you say uh, about the Olympic basketball legacy? How would you kind of summarize it? Um, and yeah, whether you think there is one or not and kind of how it's how it's panned out compared to what your, your expectations were maybe before in the run up to 2012. It's a great question, Sam. And um, one that, you know, I've, you know, chopped and chopped over quite a bit, you know, with different types of people. Um, there's no question in my mind that, you know, we all, every single person that was part of that project, um, didn't matter whether you were a coach, whether you're a player, whether you were an administrator, um, we all went in there with the with a with the most positive mindset um we were trying to change the culture of british basketball and you know when i'm not going to sit and stand, uh, sit here and lie to you um we had the financial resources that could could have enabled that um so it would, there were some incredible financial resources thrown at that um program both on the male and female side um my own thoughts on the legacy as such is that um there's no doubt that um we were probably, as a as an organization, caught up in the moment. So let's think about it. You know, first stage, 2007, 2008, what was the first goal? The first goal is absolutely had to win those first initial um, Group C. I think even we were at Group C, whatever those games were, Group C, Group B games, to get 
you know, into a position where we would be in the main group to qualify for Eurobasket. Um, then your your whole goal is to be qualifying for Eurobasket. Then the next goal is to be at Eurobasket and gain experience and then go through the same process to be at the next Eurobasket um, and then start, you know, going into what the ultimate goal was, was the Olympic Games. So we, we, we I feel that everything was an in-the-moment thought process and no one um, was there with an overview of what we should be doing to create the legacy. I mean, actually, if you think about it, Seb Coe and the, you know, the games organizers, they had a vision right from the start. You know, we want legacy, we want um, facility legacy, we want um, aspirational legacy. But when with British basketball, because we had no history, you know, it started scratch, you know, we were at zero. So what was our legacy? Our legacy is to try to, pro, you know, give profile to the sport. And I just think that the people that were involved, who were good people on the whole, um, just lost sight of that. And we also didn't have a, an overview person that had the, the, the higher view, viewpoint from a basketball perspective that, you know, could have created a plan which then led into an actual legacy. If, if I was to push you and say, um, what, what would you say are the actual tangible sort of legacy elements that exist right now in British basketball that wouldn't have ex- existed if it wasn't for the London 2012 Olympics? Like, what would you say they are? Oh, I mean, um, I mean that's, a, that's, a, that's a great question. I mean, literally, we only ended up with you know, a facility that didn't really, wasn't really a basketball facility, it's a multi-purpose facility, the Copper Box, but at least we ended up with, you know, a premier BBL team playing out of there. Um, so that's that's a somewhat of a legacy, even though um, my, I, I, there was a, if I go back just very quickly, you know, and, and, and you know me, Sam, you know, I'm very passionate about the game and stuff, but I also, you know, I, I'm one of the few people that does think in a longer term process. Um, I wrote part of the original London 2012 bid. It might have been this couple of sentences on, on a, on a, on, on the plan, but I wrote the, I was working and doing consultancy for Hackney or doing some stuff for Hackney at the time. And I wanted um, there to be a legacy building that was named after Joe White. You know, I wanted the Joe White Basketball Center. So I wrote a document um, detailing that Hackney had this huge tradition in basketball and that we should be, um, this should be a building if, because at that time, don't forget, there wasn't even the plans weren't even built. This was when we were trying to get the games. So I was saying, hey, Hackney is part of this Olympic um, pr- uh, plan with the actual, you know, five London boroughs. We should be the area that actually has the basketball arena. That arena should stay and that arena should have the legacy of Joe White and also basketball in London. So that was my vision. Um, we never got close to that. We never even got, you know, so we didn't get a six train, six court training venue, did we? So from, from, from a standpoint, we got the copper box. Um, what else did we get? I mean, um, we got, you know, some players, you know, have done well, you know, and have continued with their careers. Um, there could have been some aspirational pro, uh, from uh, from the younger players that watched 2012 that say, you know, said that I want to be part of Great Britain basketball. But from a pure where did the sport go? Um, we really could argue the sport, the sport is, is, is no further forward than when we were in the process and then actually at the games to where we are now. 
Um, you know, the men's team have just qualified for Eurobasket. Well, they that was back then as well. Um, so, you know, where where are we? We're not we're not like a top six or top eight team in the world or top six or eight team in Europe. We we genuinely haven't gotten anywhere forward. Matter of fact, we can say that we went backwards, and that's not um, a good uh, look for the actual legacy factor from a playing standpoint. Well, one of the things that came up was. Um the fact that obviously as a host nation we didn't get an automatic spot and there was all this sort of uh, jumping through hoops so to speak FIBA kept on moving the goalposts and saying okay you know to get your, your spot you, first you need to get out of division C or whatever it wasn't and work your way up through the ranks then it was to qualify for Eurobasket then it was to have a strong performance at Eurobasket and obviously from, from FIBA's standpoint my understanding was they were trying to push the programme forward and, and basically um, help help British basketball uh, sort of improve their standards and grow and get better but actually one of the things that came up was that um, it, it almost proved to be a distraction and become the sole focus so rather than being able to put energy and resource into you know potentially longer term legacy projects it became as you were saying very much more in the moment like we have to do this we have to do this the the priority is actually ensuring that we get a spot at the olympics do you feel like that that's a fair a fair comment do you think that fiba's um sort of strategy there ended up almost backfiring in a way that allowed it to not be so so uh so much of a longer term planning thing well, uh, you know, with the answer, I'm going to answer the question. But of course, it, this comes back to basketball um, in 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 Great Britain and England and the UK. You know, just the whole perception um, worldwide. I mean, we wouldn't have had that perception if we were France or if we were Spain or even if we were Germany. Um, we would have been given a host nation spot. So that's the first thing, and obviously. Um, that's something that we need to work on. But, you know, as regards to that, yeah, absolutely. I said it at the start. Um, we really, you know, were in living in the moment. And those games were critical. I remember, you know, the, 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 the qualifying. I think we were in the Czech Republic when we won that game to, to qualify for the first time ever for, to Eurobasket as Great Britain. Um, I mean, the relief at that moment was just like, in, you know, incredible. You know, we had, we had, we had got to something. Um, we'd achieved that first stage of the goal. Um, but it was, and it, and it did take the focus away. And I also think that, um, I mean, there were some, there were some things. I mean, you know, just, 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 I'll give you a, a, an example. And I'm not going to be critical of any people here, but, um, I remember we had a poor showing at Eurobasket. And, you know, they made, um, you know, they, I mean, it was, it was pretty much, it was a board, it was Chris Spice, I guess Ron had some involvement in that, but they made some decisions on personnel, um, myself and Tim's role slightly changed, um, but more importantly, um, Duncan French, who is now the, the head of S&C at the UFC and had gone on to be the head of you know, sports science at Notre Dame University, um, you know, was let go. And that was crazy. Duncan was world, world, world class. And here he is let go because, you know, they're using him as a, as a, as a scapegoat. I mean, uh, the, the point I want to make on that is that there had to be a maturity to, you know, what we were doing. Chris Finch and Nick Nurse were world-class coaches. So did we actually need anyone else coming in as a, as a world-class coach? And then even there were rumors at times that Chris would lose his job um, because of the performances and stuff. It, it was a, there, there was no stability in that aspect and there needed to be stability um, going forward um, to give confidence to people to do their job at their best of abilities. 
Yeah, I mean, on that note, on the coaching stuff, one of the things that, that is, is I, you know, I hear a lot of people speak about is the, is the lack of a British coaching presence on the bench uh, at the Olympics, you know, on, on uh, well, across both the men's and the, the women's program. I think Vanessa was the only one that was actually on the bench, right? Um, yeah, Damien Jennings was on that staff, but uh, Vanessa was on the bench, yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, but Damien, Damien wasn't on the bench, and then the same on the obviously on the men's side, Tim Lewis wasn't actually on the bench. Like, you know, when you talk about sort of, uh, well, obviously the problem was the Olympics finish isn't, of course, you know, there's a massive change in personnel, and uh, you know, all of the, all of these coaches uh, are not around and passing passing those those learnings on to the next generation. And the reason that we obviously had to bring in, uh, well. The, the justification for bringing in the, the foreign coaches was that we didn't have anyone with the experience necessary to sort of head coach at an Olympics or whatever. And then we're in a situation where, well, then we're not putting anyone in place from the UK to then take those learnings on, potentially take over the program and, and give that continuity uh, and then pass on that knowledge. Like, you know, obviously, you know, firsthand, like how much of a, of a sort of poor decision do you think that was? Um, and kind of what were the conversations around that at the time? So uh, this was going back, there, there are two aspects to this. Let me talk about the direct aspect of the, you know, what, what you're asking about legacy planning um, and just thinking forward. There are two, two things that I think they missed on. They missed on running a par- parallel um, men's and women's programs, if you want to call them the futures programs, you know, B team, whatever you want to use this terminology, should have been run parallel to the men's men's and women's programs and they're basically squad players because what happened at the end of the olympics was we knew that 70 percent of those players were going to retire you know there were there was an older team there was very few younger players on that team so what we needed was we needed a whole series of players that believed they were good enough to play on that olympic team but didn't make it, but was still part of the process. They still got all the equipment. They were still part of it. They were in the stands. They felt a camaraderie. Chris and Nick would have been there on, you know, talking to them, taking practice sessions, all of those type of things. I'm talking male, but I'm also talking female. But we didn't have that. So the players um, that were left out of that program felt really, you know, that they were just, you know, cast aside. And that for a number of years, for three or four years, created some issues with the next coaching staff trying to take them on. With regards to the coaching, um, absolutely. I mean, you know, there was just no foresight. You know, I, I, I would have thought that, you know, both myself and Tim would, would have been, you know, good enough to have coached the next GB program. Um, and I'm not just saying that. We had enough experience. I'd just come off of winning every trophy at that time, you know, in the UK. You know, I was, go- I was going into Europe and Germany and Tim exactly the same. We were good enough to coach those teams at that time. But um, there was... You you know, the, you know what? How, what were the discussions? The discussions were, um, in some ways, you know, muted. I mean, Chris and Nick did their, especially Chris would always champion us and you know talk about you know trying to get people you know in, and that's why he brought us in. But there's not nothing was ever said to to myself or Tim about you know being part of the continuity of the of the program after that, and you know how you know both of us were treated in that last year. So we came out of Eurobasket in uh, 2011, um, believe that was Lithuania, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and we were, 
It was. Am I right in saying that? 2010 or 2011? I'm trying to think. Um, Eurobasket was 2011. Yeah, 11, 2011. Yeah, we came out of Eurobasket 2011, and you know, team. You know, I was doing advanced scouting. You know, Tim was doing scouting, but you know, was also around on on with the team and stuff. And you know, we we just didn't have as much clarity with our roles at that time as what there should have been. Um, and then we start getting into that whole scenario of we're starting to hear that, um, you know, Chris Spice and Ron are starting to position themselves um, to be part of the staff. And, you know, I, I like, um, you know, Ron's a tremendous guy. I always believe he had the game 100%, you know, in, you know, especially the British game. He was always, you know, a standout guy. Same for Chris. Chris Spice was a, was a very high level sports, um, administrator. But how they ended up as part of the Great Britain basketball program, you know, that was actually, you know, accredited to be part of the game, of the games. Well, you you don't need to be a rocket scientist to understand why and how they they wanted to be part of the 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 the, the league big experience. It was a one in one once in a lifetime. I mean, Chris Spice, if he had worked hard, you know, would have, you know still he could still be part of an Olympic process. So I don't understand that. And Ron, you know, it's his only blemish on 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 what was a really good record that that ended up happening because he had no right being there. Um, and he took it away from, you know, Paul McKeskey, Tim or myself, you know, being on the, being on the bench. But yeah, that's, uh, that's the way it is. Another thing, just just briefly, I've got two more questions. I'm worried of time. Uh, one is that, like, uh, obviously, British basketball uh, at that point, um, it, well, they, they were affiliated to. Well, it wasn't the official federation, but it was for the for the sake of the Olympics. British basketball was formed, but ultimately, it, it kind of operated in a silo, uh, external to the home nation governing bodies. And you know, when you're talking about legacy, the home nations, well, home nations and the professional league really have to be involved. You know, when you're talking about if there's a spike in participation, how you're going to feed those players into clubs and and everything else. And it felt like they very much weren't. Um, and there was obviously a lot of political wrangling. Uh, you know, both in the run up to 2012 and, and even now. Like, do you, I mean, what's your take on that? Do you feel like um, that did cause a lot of problems, and, and that also contributed to the fact that there hasn't been the legacy that maybe everyone would have hoped, because there was this organisation that was was operating very much external, without uh, sort of the the, the cooperation, uh, the combination of of the home nation bodies as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to answer that in a real simple way. I mean, you know, we. we, we You've you've done a you, this is your hundredth podcast. Um, you know you've you've spoken for you know for all of your life, fifteen years to people that have an understanding of basketball. We're a fragmented sport at every single level: federation, na- uh, professional league, national league, national junior leagues. We're fragmented. You know our academy program is you know has been really good. But it's fragmented to different, different, different types of people. It's a simple, you know, a simple answer. We just there wasn't a cohesion, so there isn't one person saying right at the top, right. This is how we're going to do this, um, you know. And this is Great Britain basketball, and it controls all of the home nations. We even know now, even if there's a Great Britain basketball, Scotland think that they should have people on the national team. Um, they should have coaches. Um, Wales pipe up, you know, for whatever. They don't have any, any, any. Rel- relevant players on the male side they have some on the female side um you know it's a joke you know so you know what happened there was just uh, circumstantial to where our game was then 
and unfortunately is now. There is no cohesion to it, and that was the biggest problem of all. And so what happened was, like you said, there was a separate body. Um, you know, Ron and Chris Spice and the board of that body ran, uh, ran it almost like a, a professional business with just the sole goal of being at the Olympic Games, being successful at the Olympic Games, and trying to have some influence outside it. And then finally, if, if you, knowing how things have panned out, if you were to go back now in those early meetings with, with British basketball, like, um, what would you be saying to, or, or advice you'd be giving to potentially change how, how they did operate to ensure that there is a, a legacy? You know, um, it's, that's, that's an incredible question, Sam. And, um, I mean, it's even, you know, like 25 years ago, I should have, uh, told or 20, yeah, 25 years ago when Barry Marshall bought London, London Towers, I should have told him by, you know, listen, you know, Barry, we've got to build a facility, you know, to, uh, to host the club. And that should have been exactly the same message, you know, to, to the British basketball. We had the money, you had all those millions. We could have at least created one national training center. We should have gone and looked and said, oh, wow, right, there's this huge, you know, uh, converted warehouse. Let's just bang in. And I believe that happened with a couple of sports. I think that a couple of sports made, I think badminton uh, made themselves a national performance center. You know, we should have got a, a Great Britain National Basketball Center that didn't cost lots of millions that we could have said, right, if we've done nothing else, we've created a facility that young people can play at, our national teams can play at, potentially was linked to some sort of dormitory accommodation um, and that would have had a legacy aspect. At this moment, when you, you know, quite rightly start the, uh, the conversation today, we ended up almost with nothing. And, you know, there's very tangible, very little tangible evidence of exactly what we ended up with. Perfect. That's a perfect place to leave it. Tony, uh, thank you so much uh, for taking the time. Thank you, Sam. Always a uh, pleasure. Next up was Warwick Can. Um, as you will hear in this, he kind of held a variety of roles and sort of a dual position that was funded both by the British Basketball Federation or British Performance Basketball and also Basketball England as kind of a performance pathways coordinator, uh, ensuring that the uh, junior development side of things and the pathway through from the juniors to the seniors um, existed. So yeah, had a lot of interesting insight. Originally from Australia, he joined the call from Australia. Um, his webcam was a little bit low, low res uh, so you can see the quality is maybe not what uh, others were but um yeah had some really interesting insights and i enjoyed uh, talking to him about the legacy and of course he hang around a little bit after the olympics was was in post until 2016 um so had some really interesting insights so the other obvious big thing that we haven't spoken about is the is the olympics um you know, I'll be, I'll be interested in kind of hearing sort of your take when 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 you first came into the role, knowing that the Olympics was what three three years away. At that time, did you believe uh, that the Olympics could end up being you know a huge potential explosion point for the sport and and sort of grow uh, the number of people that are interested in it and put a spotlight on it in a way that has never been done before? Yeah, that was my hope. Yeah, that was one of the reasons of taking the role on in the first place. That. If, and you know Sam yourself and your listeners will know how big the game is worldwide. So the fact that it may not have reached its perceived potential or it's underachieving or it's not got its thing together, whichever word you want, is disappointing. Um, and equally disappointing has been the, the... I'll call it inconsistency, and I'll probably get some... 
government official offside with this, the inconsistency of the funding schemes that were in the UK at the time. I can remember sitting in, when I was in a dual role and looking at the amount of investment that hockey got, field hockey that is, from Sport England and UK Sport and comparing that to basketball and I was staggered. And then I'd look at netball and like I, I, understand, I get all the reasons. But And I said, that, said this at the time and I may be wrong but no, there was no way in my opinion that field hockey at the junior level was bigger than basketball in England in my opinion, just a guesstimate based upon it. Yet its funding level was three, four times what it could be. So, yeah, I, I think it had that potential, but I don't think, and I wrote it down here, I don't think the transition investment strategy from UK sports because of its metal focus and the divide, because it's very easy to say, well, it's not our department, it's the other department, Sport England, and flip-flop between the two. But, you know, if there was to be a legacy, then there should have been a legacy strategy of investment for the particular sport, which, in my opinion, possibly could have been better coordinated between the lead agencies within the UK, be it Sport England and that, whatever. Different people argue at different times, you're getting enough money and stuff like that. I know that in the initial days, I had to put the, the performance plan together for England basketball to get money. So I worked with those guys really closely. But it was it would always go to someone else's desk and someone else would sign off on it. So it was someone else's perception of the amount of money that you should get. And I forget there was always some issues that Keith was always fighting against compared to some of the other sports. So... The way that those agencies, uh, and they're always trying to be good, don't get me wrong, but I found that I found that if you look at what happened, so I took over from uh, Chris Spice when he jumped to swimming and I uh, was offered the national team's director's position. My first job in January 2013, I walked into the old UK sport offices um, in London with Roger Morland's and we thought we were just going for a catch-up meeting or whatever. And, and it was the middle of January and um, this kind of come off Christmas and stuff like that. And he said, uh, I want to advise you, your funding's been cut. So that was the year after the Olympics and the legacies and stuff like that. And my jaw just dropped. Roger's jaw just dropped because there was no inkling of any transition strategy. Some decision had been made, but no transition investment strategy had been made to preserve the legacy that the governments were trying to do. So then that started the, the big fight, the political fight, which eventually got the, uh, actually it got 60% of the funding restored. Not 100%, 60%. So we were down 40%. It was still enough to do the things that we needed to do, but it was down 40% and it was less than other people. Uh, other team sports particularly, who were getting double dips uh, within, the, within the funding. Um, so that became really, really hard. Um, and then throwing programs together uh, when you have your no, no funding, and then they go, oh, you got funding, and then you have to put a preparation program together. Thank God for Spain and Greece that kind of came to our party and helped us recognise our 
dilemma and we threw some good preparation programs together for both men and women and actually got our highest results you know at, at that Eurobasket um, but imagine what it would be like if there was a transition policy for a sport like basketball which was better coordinated within government and that had supported governance by the home nations like I don't want to go into the what's happened after I've gone but like you know if you want the sport to be um, uh, go ahead it needs to be well managed it needs to present well in the early days it didn't always present well and there was divided loyalties between the home nations and GB and then that didn't sit well with UK and then to please UK sport basketball changes its identity to GB and that further complicates the whole thing whereby there, sh there could have been a legacy structure if people looked at the things that were subsequently that were brought to the table that they neglected to do in their assessments in the first place we would have had a better legacy and we would have had a better transition strategy and 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 I don't I think it would have been more stable and it would have been able to grow uh, but once that was pulled everyone just went their own ways and forgot about pulling together because there was no purpose to do it that's just my take on it what do you think uh, if someone was to ask you like what was the Olympic legacy for, for British basketball like what would you say are sort of the, the, the key elements that have been left behind so to speak that have helped sort of the sport that wouldn't have otherwise existed if, if the Olympics didn't happen well, there's multiple levels to that Sam um, if I think about the areas that uh, I was involved with which were better as a result of the Olympics than if it hadn't have had the investment then I'll go back to that regional structure within England basketball about the development pathways, the RPCs, the uh, regional tournaments, and the ability to ungrade from clubs into regions and to get different people involved with coaching different kids. Um, I think that's stood, from what I can gather, as, and I don't know how it's been managed, but I, I think that's stood stood in good terms. So I think a lot of the stuff in the pathway stuff is obviously paid off if you look at the Commonwealth Games teams and the coaches there that went off with that. Um, I don't know how that process was done, but if I look at the consistency there, I go, well, that's progress, and then, you know, the women do particularly well. And so I think there are good things. Um, I think the investment helped, even though it was short-term, I think the investment did help, particularly England and Scotland basketball. Um, but it, its lack of being able to be sustained didn't... There were no alternative sources of income to drive similar strategies, so therefore they dry up. So therefore people went back to not being collaborative and not, not working together because they didn't have a need to, um, you know. So I think the legacy has been disappointing, I'd probably say, in... And I'm not saying that from a basketball. I'm saying from a, what the government said it wanted to achieve. Like a lot of these governments everywhere go, well, there's going to be a legacy and stuff like that out of it. So I think the real question is what was the, was the legacy achieved by uh, the London Games? And if one of the questions was it should spur other people, well, the participation rates in basketball excels and when I was there, was second only to football in the males component. 
So if that was a legacy that was achieved, then that's good. But it also is a reason why it should have had continued investment. One of the things that <clears throat> you seem to have alluded to, and a lot of other people have spoken about, um, is the the sort of the political side of things. Uh, you know, there was it was well, it's, it's been well well documented that you know British basketball was almost uh, seen to be operating independently of the home nations. There was sort of infighting between the home nations and British basketball. Do you feel like sort of having British basketball as a separate organisation, so to speak, with separate staff, separate offices, um, and being, you know, you said at the start, like you were perceived as GB uh, in in that initial role, which kind of caused problems in, in certain places. Do you feel like that uh, has is one of the things that's held back the the potential of the Olympic legacy and what could have what could have been done off the the back of the Olympics by having uh, essentially a separate organisation uh, to to run the Olympic programs. Um, I'll come from the back end of this to the front end. So my reflection is, what is being British? So British is something that a Scotsman, a Welshman or Englishman is when they're overseas. But when they're at home, they're not British. They're English, they're Scottish or they're Welsh and very... Fervent. You can see that in the political spectrum and the votes and all that type of thing. So I think that identity of GB and how you manifest it for an Olympics every four year and fit that into a basketball context was very difficult. Like if you look at hockey, England becomes GB in the fourth year. It's just that simple. And if they want to select someone from Scotland or Wales or, you know, North, wherever, they can do that. That that model, I guess, could have been done, but when UK Sport decided, this is my understanding, when UK Sport decided to invest in basketball, it didn't want to make that happen. It didn't want to give the money to England basketball. So it formed its own company entity to safeguard the millions of investment that it was making because that was its terms. So... The reason for the separate entity was, and this is fact, was because UK Sport wanted it. The second aspect of that is what is British and what is English and what is Scottish, whatever. So you had that governance model, and that's where there were great attempts to try and unite. So I worked in the early years with a performance management group, which had Welsh, Scotland, England. From the years that I was there, that was always a collaborative workplace. That was always trying to work, and it was focused on how to do things better. So, you know, um, Lucy, I can't think of her name, you know, from Wales, did a section and was uh, part sub-editor for the areas of emphasis. They all had input into it, but they were all influencing different things. Like, well, Welsh junior basketball is totally different to Scottish junior basketball, totally different to England junior basketball. Um, and then there were attempts to... Um, align people so I think it's fair to say history would say that Scotland was more aligned with GB than what England was and that probably goes back to the first point I made which but clearly was a UK sport decision um, I think where it becomes interesting is and like there were some great people like Bill McGuinness God bless him was a champion champion leader of basketball 
and many others, other people have different opinions about other people. But I can tell you that board in my time were very switched on to trying to do the right thing by basketball and were acutely aware of the politics within Scotland and England and the wild child of Wales, if I can call it that. Um, but the politics certainly didn't help it. Um, the constitution of the entity becomes very, very interesting because of that thing. So you know, the Union Jack flies here. What's the, fly, what's the flag of Scotland? What's the flag of England? It's not Union Jack. So, so there was a big task there. So it was very hard. I guess that's where I, my big learning was how do you galvanise people who have separate divisions, you know, which have come out in political voting streams and stuff like that. So I know I'm not answering your question, but I, I'm trying to allude to how hard the governance and the model was at that particular time for those people. And it was easy for people to say stones, like you should be spending it on this and whatever. A lot of it was tied funding. It was tied funding, this is the entity. This is where the money goes. So, yeah, I would have loved more money for the Regional Institute, but someone says, here's, this is your cut of the slice. You try and make it work, you know. So, in anything, you have to build up the business case and go on to it. And I just think the, the lack of alignment and the lack of collaboration between Sport England and, um, and UK Sport also hurt, hurt the sport because if the legacy was increased participation, and I think they're probably well-funded now, but... It was too easy to throw them back and forth. Um, I think the GB entity and the governance model is a very interesting one. It's a bit like the uh, one of all the Premier League clubs done over there at the present moment, mate. They've all gone into a Super League, and uh, who made that decision? So, um, you know, governance, is it shared and collaborative? Is it open and transparent, etc.? So... Um, Hopefully I'm giving your listeners a bit of an insight into the intrigue about, to me it wasn't one or the other, there was good people involved with it, but it was a difficult task and it was governed by where UK Sport wanted the money and then ultimately when UK Sport withdrew the money, then it became even more convoluted because then Sport England kind of came in on, the, on my, my last sector just before I flew out, subsidising the GB teams or the national teams. You know, where to me that whole thing could have been, if they were for the sport and the legacy was participation, then there could have been a better government transition strategy and less disruption in uh, in the short term to their longer term goals. And then if that had been stable, maybe with stable governance and collaboration between the home nations and the leaders of those particular people, then the sport would be grown. But there was always this possessive entity, I think, between who is GB, who's running GB, and England. And I think I think that's where it kind of ultimately showed out in, in what happened subsequently um, with the politics of it all. Um, but it's a shame. And then final question. Knowing what you know now, uh, you know, and obviously having had a chance to reflect on on everything uh, from from when you were involved through through to the Olympics, post Olympics, if you were to go back and you were hired in that position again, is there anything that you would do differently? Is there anything that you would change um, about how you went about things? Um, I think it would have been fine tuning. I think my my key principles were 
always communication, collaboration, whether you knew someone was your enemy or didn't agree with you or didn't like the GB badge. You, I always knew who I was sitting with. Um, and at the end of the day, it's kind of like a mate, Jim Wright, tells me in Scotland. I can remember going up and doing a, a clinic on the court up there in Scotland for all the wise coaches up there. And if you've ever walked into Scotsman's den, you know, of 55 warriors sitting around ready to critique and pull apart an Australian representing GB, but coming from the England basketball offices, then you've got some idea of the magnitude. But I dare say I knew what that was. Um, and I dare say that if that was a battle, I won that battle ultimately. But there's always battles that you could fight fight a bit differently, uh, do things a bit better. Um, the hardest thing, Sam, is it was a moving feast. It just kept changing because of, you know, position changes or whatever. Um, and that's why I like, you know, the, at least the regional structure's been there. Uh, Scotland tried to develop something similar, eventually got their teams into WNBL, uh, you know, in, in that league. So... You know, the alignment with the BBL, we haven't touched upon that, but, you know, like, you know, there's some very good people trying to do very good stuff there. Um, but money's short, and it's really hard to do the things that you aspire to. But, you know, so if I came back in and the Leicester Riders were as they are now compared to where when I came in, there was, was a whole scope of things you could probably do better or fine-tune within that scope of things, but... You know, they hire coaches, either full-time or part-time. They have the various tiers about what there's going. They've got, they've got a university involved, you know. Like, so you would hope that there would be more of those type models around um, because that's the closest thing to what I would call an association in Australia. But, uh, yeah, so interesting question. Um, I don't have to worry about it, Sam, is the other way to... Um, to look at it, um, I don't have any regrets. I have regrets. I got, I got chased down by media at, at one stage when I was doing the national directors of coaching position, and there were some things happening behind the scenes which were unsavoury that I didn't like. But no one knows what I had to go through in those times, the shoes and the different parts, and trying to make it all work. You know, we're lucky that. You know, we've got good staff. Like I gave Nate ranking his start in coaching, you know. Um, I've got other people on the way like Andreas and Alan Keane, you know. So there's a lot of good things to do. You try and do more of it, um, you know. But the landscape changes. The caravan moves on. You'd have to kind of go in there and, you know, one person has to work within the structure of governance. So that's always going to influence you So on what you can do and what you can achieve. So... You try and influence that, but you know you can't change it in the short term. Next up is Mark Clark. Uh, Mark was the Great Britain senior women's coach until, uh, I don't know what year it was, but uh, ultimately he ended up resigning or being asked to resign, uh, kind of stepped down from his post uh, and has since stayed around uh, the program, ended up being the performance director for a number of years um, or a period of time and uh, has obviously been the CEO of Basketball England, has a good grasp on the state of the game in this country, currently the head coach of the BA London Lions uh, in the WBBL. 
Um, yeah, and had a lot to say about sort of the Olympic legacy and, and what has happened since. Mark, so can we just start just by giving people a bit of context um, with kind of your roles and responsibilities uh, with British basketball, both in the run-up to 2012 and then how you were involved uh, post-2012 as well? Okay, so uh, when GB were awarded the, uh, the 2012 Games, uh, they set the GB programme up. So I was appointed as the head coach to take it from zero to... Well, the plan was from zero all the way through to, to 2012. Um, so I uh, head coached the program through quite a promotion from the B division to the A division, uh, the first A division campaign. And then uh, GB decided to make a change and brought in Tom Marr. And subsequently, I became a board member of Basketball England. Uh, yeah, then GB asked me to go onto the board and be responsible for performance and then became the performance director uh, as a paid role, part-time paid role, uh, until just prior to the women's Euro basket in uh, Latvia and Serbia. Obviously, it's clear. I think why your viewpoint is so interesting is because you were involved from the from the very start, and then you've been heavily involved also, like in the aftermath, if if you want to call it that, of, of 2012. Um, but I think, yeah, like starting with the beginning, like. Uh, assuming that you were privy to various conversations within the organisation from the start of um, sort of British performance basketball as it was uh, then, what were the conversations that were being had around uh, the 2012 Olympics, the run-up to 2012 Olympics, and whether or not there were conversations about how can we ensure that this isn't just a flash in the pan, it's not just a sort of one-off event, one-off big party, and then nothing is left afterwards? Um, well, obviously, the, the major issue for everybody involved on the GB front then was that, that FIBA hadn't actually said that we could take the, the host team spot because GB didn't exist. We played and we're a member of FIBA as England, Scotland and Wales. So um, GB historically had played in Olympic qualifiers, but uh, re, uh, in, recent, in recent times had not been uh, a member of FIBA as such. And therefore there was this debate. We had no ranking um, if you, even if you took England's ranking, because that was made worse by the fact that England, for financial reasons, hadn't been participating in European Championships for a number of years prior to 20, 2005, 2006, uh, and then only recently got back into age group competition. So the, it was a difficult situation. Um, FIBA obviously wanted uh, a host nation to compete. Uh, FIBA obviously want, wanted Great Britain to be a major basketball player because for all the known reasons that people talk about in terms of you know huge country big sporting legacy etc uh, but couldn't just give us a place so the, the major priority was to uh, qualify um, we had to go through the various stages um, of going through b division to a division etc it was made very clear uh, to myself and uh, chris finch that uh, our job was to get from b into a so that we could prove that we were able to compete at that level Never really had, there were a number of conversations about potential um, legacy around uh, running things like uh, futures teams, etc., which was very much, I know uh, Coach Finch pushed that and actually directly coached it initially. Um, so that was a, a big thing for us, that this shouldn't be a uh, play in the Olympics and then go back to being normal. Uh, FIBA made that very clear because there was un there was never going to be an England Scotland Wales scenario again. FIBA wanted Great Britain and got Great Britain, but there wasn't really a lot of focus on what happened on the day the Olympic Games finished. It was all about our performance at the Olympic Games. Um, yeah. 
do you feel like the general mood amongst, I guess, not just British basketball, but the sort of the basketball community in general was that the Olympics um, was going to be the, the the firecracker that that sort of makes the sport reach its potential and has the has the it's an opportunity for for the sport to really blow up? Like, do you feel like that was people were saying that and believing that the Olympics was going to be the, the catalyst, so to speak, to make it make the sport reach the potential that everyone has spoken about for you know so many decades? Well, it was it was talked about as being you know the latest of the last chances for basketball as such, you know, everyone, everyone accepts and believed that uh, basketball could be and should be a huge sport in this country. Um, yeah, I, I would, I would agree with the way you've worded it, that people thought this was going to be a huge opportunity um, for the whole sport to get behind, get behind that, that program for the whole sport to benefit, put in place lots of uh, initiatives that would feed off a uh, successful 2012 Um I would say that from a performance perspective, since 2012, I mean, men and women have only missed one Euro basket. Um, you know, the men have, you know, nine years later, the men have qualified again. And, and you're looking at a lot of players that would have been inspired. Um, you've got some senior players that would have been uh, introduced to a national team program that instead of being, oh, we're just going to go and can try and compete and qualify. The expectation, I think now, uh, is that from the players anyway, is that they should compete. You have a, a women's team that was fourth in Eurobasket. So it's a surprise then when we don't qualify, um, which is a huge step from where we were. But that's down to quality of player uh, and in spite of the system since. What would you say, like, if I was to ask you, like, what do you think the actual tangible Olympic legacy is, um, if any? Like, would you say, like, yeah, like, do you think, first of all, I guess there's, there's two questions in there. One, do you think there is an Olympic legacy? Do you think there's an Olympic legacy like there should have been? Uh, and then kind of the final part of that question is, uh, if you do, like, what do you think the actual tangible elements of the Olympic legacy uh, is for basketball? I, <clears throat> I think the, the only real legacy uh, is the expectation and the, the culture and the attitude around players and, and the team itself that they expect and believe they should be qualifying. Um, I, th I think that that, um, that is, is clear. It, there, there is an expectation now to qualify, and that was because we had a program that enabled us to compete. You could argue we're competing as equally well now with, without, so, you know, without superstars or without whoever uh, on the men's side. We've got great players, um, but they don't have the profile of some of the players that were playing in 2012. We're, we are being as competitive because um, we still on the men's side still haven't qualified for a second stage of Eurobasket. On the on the on the female side, we've got some you know really elite players that, and we did qualify and ended up finishing fourth in 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 uh, Serbia. So I think the legacy that's a positive is that that the players, be it through the way academies and things have had an impact on the quality of young player and the development they get, our, our national teams are more competitive. Um, I think the legacy for basketball, we've missed that opportunity um, in, in a number of different ways, largely because uh, we didn't operate as a sport um, at all. When you say uh, we didn't operate as a sport, like what are you talking about? What are you referring to there? Is that is that more directly talking about the sort of the federations uh, having the home nations and then a separate sort of British basketball body, like specifically uh, kind of what, what are you referring to? Well, we're still having debates about who does what. And, and, and 
we're still having debates around you know the, the, the finances financing is a huge issue obviously it is for every sport not just basketball um, we're so you know, the funding in sport is so heavily skewed towards um, to towards football as such um, in terms of the money in sport generally um, so there's there's always this background of we don't have a lot of money but I, um, yeah the you, I'm sure, well, I know that there are a number of conversations in every federation about the conflict and the clash and the conflicting parties being between club and federation. But we have uh, conflict and discussion between federation and federation and club. And that can't be, that can't be conducive to taking the sport forward. It doesn't make the sport look attractive to external funders. It doesn't make the sport look attractive to um, government um yet i don't think we're very far away from you know getting that common purpose at all but i think uh i think people have to be have to understand what what role they can have and what contribution they can have and if you look at most countries around europe it's it's based upon the, the quality of the professional game and the quality of clubs and that and and you look at the strides and the development in the bbl which has been really good um but there's still a debate there's still a debate between federation and federation and that, that can't be healthy you spoke about money there, like, you know, in the run-up to 2012, money was one of the issues the British basketball didn't have, right? Um, when, when we talk about funding, uh, I think by 2012, uh, about 10 million, it was between 9 and 10 million had been put into to British basketball by UK Sport specifically. Um, I guess when you talk about the, the the spending of that money, like, do you feel like we've heard reports of you know All Star weekends, uh, <laughs> board meetings, and just you know overspend in various places, training camps at St George's Park where you're bringing in a basketball court, and just kind of just things where you know as a taxpayer you you might say that's a not a very good spending of 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 the money. Um, do you feel like the money was spent well? And then do you think when you look at the return? on that investment, uh, essentially, you know, your, your victory at, at the Olympics, single victory, uh, do you think they got a return on, on that investment? Um, I'd sum up my, my view on the, the sort of the spending side with, there was no check and balance onto what, what was being spent. It, um, I think that, um, again, compare it to other successful countries and other successful countries didn't import a floor into a location to go and practice in the middle of wherever. Um, they would work with particular clubs or they'd base themselves at particular clubs and, and particular venues and, and, and practice there. At the end of the day, the environment is, is something you can create. So I think there was money that could have been spent on different things. Um, I think if you, if you were being very black and white about things was, I suppose the two, re the initial return on that investment is that FIBA accepted that we were good enough to take a place in the Olympics. That, that's got to be part of a return because that was, that was a significant, that was not a guarantee. Um, but was that money, um, uh, was one victory a return on that investment? I think if you looked at it and stopped at 2012, uh, then you'd probably say no, that, 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 that money, there was no return on that investment. But then, the longer term or the midterm, if you look at how well the women's team did in 2013 um, and how well the men did at the next Eurobasket, where they came within one game of making the next stage, you could say there was a, there was a bigger return on that investment if, for the, for the Eurobasket straight after. Um, because I think it was a disappointment um, for the women that they didn't progress to the next stage and to get to the top eight that year because they played well enough. And you'd have to ask um, 
them or the coaching staff what happened the way they started the competition they were they they beat serbia two years later serbia won a gold medal so there was there was um there was a carry on in terms of levels of performance and there was still some funding the following year um but i i i do think and it's not necessarily i don't think it's necessarily the people running the program i think it's the people responsible for the oversight the people in the in each of the various federations that while they might not have been able to spend uk sport money on legacy they could have been focused on opportunities that would have come out of 2012 that where they could have put more legacy things in place and I, that that was happening uh, on the player development side but not in the sport because uh, Warwick Khan at the time, along with what we were doing at Barkinelli, came up with a regional uh, institute concepts that then you know, ran into a brick wall and the funding was stopped. Um, but there, there was there was some things that that being talked about, but not uh, the sport as a whole. I think the sport as a whole missed out on the return on that investment. I was going. I was going to ask about the regional institute thing. Like that. That to me. Um, so just for context, for people, there was a like Barky Abbey was the pilot sort of regional institute of basketball, and the idea was that they were going to you know bring out essentially uh, well I don't know five, six, seven uh, sort of regional institutes that were going to be sort of training centers for the top young players in the country, almost like a sort of French inset model. Um, and that was if you were an elite national team junior player, that was kind of those were the locations that you were going to go to. Like to me, that feels like. Um, a, that would have been a real legacy piece, right? Where, where it's like we've got a clear pathway defined as a result of you know the 2012 Olympics, and of course after you know you were the the, the pilot the pilot institute, nothing really happened with it, and it never really got expanded out. Like what what really happened there? Like do you know? Well, what happened was that the uh, I, I disagree with the logic on this, but what what happened was that because funding for GB was was scrapped, everything stopped from a GB perspective, apart from trying to just main, keep the teams moving, just the teams playing. Um, and there, there are a number of uh, compromises about age group teams, about who ran them and who didn't run them. Um, but that it was stopped then. But the concept of having investment in younger players, again, you, you look at elsewhere, most of the resource um, within our sport is within the, is within the pro league. And that they also have different ways or different uh, scope to attract either funding or use the funding they've got. And, uh, and again, it's another one of the situations where, okay, would a regional institute like an inset model if, you, if, if, if for ease of description uh, that, that they did? But even if you look at that really successful inset model in France, there is now a more club-based uh, process where they have espoir leagues, um, where the best young players who play for the best pro clubs, etc., play against each other. Uh, cooperation and working with the BBL wasn't what it could have been uh, from 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 any of the federations, to be quite honest. And the, and the BBL was would have benefited from that type of cooperation because it would have generated a throughput of players that could have played in the BBL sooner than is happening now. Because for different reasons, there's a more there's more British players playing in the more quality British players playing in the BBL now. Yeah, I was going to say how how much of a um, like it feels like as a as an external observer that the Olympics was very much about British basketball, the organisation, 
and everyone else just wasn't involved. You know, like uh, the BBL, you know, how much were they involved? Barcelona, how much were they involved? Like, how much were Barcelona even communicating about the Olympics? It was almost like Barcelona were like, well, it's British basketball's job. They're going to leave that. And British basketball were kind of like, well, we don't want Barcelona involved. Like, how much of the politics played a role in sort of stopping a joined approach um, of really being able to capitalize? Because like you said before we started recording, even though, let's say, the UK sport money couldn't have been used for a facility to become the training ground of GB basketball, there are ways where if there was a joined up approach, um, Basketball England could have approached Sport England and with a plan and said, okay, you know, we've got the Olympics approaching, this is what we want to do, this is how much money we need, and potentially put in a bid to make something like that happen. But because there wasn't that joined up uh, approach, it just never ended up happening. Like, Do you think it was that ultimately just came down to politics? Uh, politics, yeah. Well, you could group a number of things under the word politics. But yes, I, I think there was too much of... And I think there was, and I'm, this isn't uh, something where you can blame one side of the argument compared to the other, because if you look at the people involved, um, there was an enormous amount of basketball knowledge, historical basketball knowledge, which should have actually been a, uh, been a, a positive. I mean, the year before British performance basketball sort of kicked in, Basketball England funded the GB programs. Uh, I mean, Keith Mayer did a, uh, with Rad Miller Turner, did an amazing job to kick the GB programs often give Chris and I even the semblance of a program to start with. Um, so how, how we went from that to a political problem, only, only the people involved. And, and the, from the other side of it, you know, it was a frustration to a number of people, including me, that there was a tendency from some people within the GB, organize, GB basketball organization to, to, to almost say that basketball in 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 the uk didn't start until 2006 which was um a real contradiction considering that you know one of the greats of british basketball in terms of bill mcginnis had played in you know two olympic game qualifiers so there was you know basketball did happen before 2006 in great britain that you know there were great britain teams even to the extent that they there was almost trying to say well they've had their first cap no they they, they played for england or scotland or or wales even for in terms of players and so it's very easy to say, oh, well, Basketball England did this, or GB Basketball did this, but there was there was not any time it would appear spent on any work to try and get the two organisations, number three or four organisations, to understand how they best could contribute to the outcome. Um, I think there was a bit of, you know, GB would come in and say that they were going to or try to do everything at, and ignore um, the good things that had been done before. Uh, and try and learn from the bad things that was done before you and you could easily argue that from that perspective that there wasn't time FIBA had said you have to qualify well there's all there's always time to make your organization better but it became a very much from from where I was sitting it was almost like just on slightly on the outside of that but having a foot in both camps in, in many times I couldn't understand how we weren't utilizing some of the really good qualities there were in basketball England or basketball Scotland. Um, and while, why those organizations were almost just walking away up to a point from what was going on at a GB level. So GB did become the way you described it, GB almost operating in a, um, in its own world, um, having communication with, but not working with, and everybody ignored um, to too great an extent um, what the professional league had done and was trying to do 
<clears throat> you compare that to how Basketball England worked with clubs before the Commonwealth Games in 2006, when it actually worked with trying to attract players, bring them back into England, like Juice Sullivan went back and played at Newcastle, um, etc. There was a, a, a very positive and healthy uh, way that uh, clubs, both men's and women's clubs, worked with federation at that point, which I don't... Maybe you'd have to ask people within the GB organization on the men's side, it wasn't as big an issue on the, on the, on the female side, but maybe there was, there was a view that, that the majority of the players was going to, were going to come from outside of the BBL anyway. So they, they, there was no need to, to work with those clubs. Uh, again, I'm not, I don't subscribe to that. There's always, the, the clubs could have really done a number of things on the back of the, and the bomb back on the back of the Olympics, but it was GB operating almost as a separate entity. And then finally, like knowing what you know now, knowing how everything's panned out, like if you were to go back to the beginning uh, and be involved with the with the program, and you were sort of sat around a table with with everyone, you know, all of the board and uh, the sort of the management team, what would you be encouraging them to do uh, potentially or do differently than than they have done? Uh, what do you think were the key things that could have been done um, to sort of change the the outcome when we're talking about the legacy? I th- if you go right back to the the agreement that was drawn up between the home countries uh, that generated uh, British basketball as such, um, more time or um, a different type of agreement may well have given the sport a different basis, uh, more direct involvement with the professional clubs uh, so that they could actually genuinely contribute and genuinely be part of of what the outcome would be um those those two things because if the base agreement is flawed or the basis of what had to go forward is flawed you're forever going to be um fighting against that or trying to operate in a uh, against the background that makes life difficult um that I, i would go right back to that because if you can have a situation where halfway through programs or halfway through things that you know, constituent members had the ability to just take back control or publicly get rid of what whoever was operating in an environment that can't be right and that's what that um, that's what that uh, that's what happened obviously uh, without going into the detail of that um, and the people who generated that decision none of those are still around so they they worked uh, and and uh, dealt with whatever they thought was wrong with GB, and now I don't think any of those people are still involved to any great extent. That can't be right. Um, and all we've got still is some some negative uh, negative discussions going on. When what we really should be doing is building on the success of the way the BBL is getting better, the way the BBL is growing, the, the fact that there's more exposure for the sport, the fact that our participation numbers are huge. You know, we are the second most participated sport, etc., uh, etc. Et um, I don't know. We're spending time arguing over. Um, well, if you take the basketball cliche, you know, you're playing for the name on the front, not the back um, of the shirt. I'm not sure if we're all playing for the name, the same name, or the same sport. Mm. Cool. That's a perfect place to leave it. Thanks for giving us such great insights. Um, yeah, really useful, and I think uh, yeah, people will get a lot of value from it. Thanks, Sam. Yep, enjoyed it. 
And then finally, we speak to Mark Woods. Uh, the leading British basketball journalist has covered the sport for many, many years. I thought it'd be worth having a conversation with him as an independent observer. No dog in the fight, um, but has obviously covered the sport uh, from afar. Well, and obviously in it at the games. Um, but kind of had a, a lot of interesting takes on what has happened, what did happen, uh, why uh, we have ended up uh, in the situation we've ended up with uh, with the Olympic legacy. Mark, so I'd just like to start with, a, I guess, a pretty broad question, uh, which is just your, your general thoughts on, on the Olympic basketball legacy. You know, here we are sort of nine years later, coming up on a, on a decade uh, next year. Um, and yeah, what's your take on, on what the Olympic basketball legacy has been? I don't think it's been remotely what people were hoping for. And I think the expectations were probably too big. If we look back on it with a little bit of hindsight, I think people thought that maybe the Games in London would spark a supernova growth of basketball in the UK. The, you know, the BBL would take off, GB would be a world force, and you know, everything. You and I would be getting rich. Um, none of those things particularly happened. You know, hey ho, that's that's the way it goes. I think that I think it's an expectation game. I think you know people I suppose hope that it would bring the sport together a bit more that you know kids would get involved the participation numbers would grow none of that's particularly happened I think it really when you delve into it it's quite hard to say what the legacy was and um, you know we all enjoyed the Olympics you know there was a, there was a period of time where you know more people maybe knew who Lowell Dane was or Pops Mentor Bonsu was and certainly we had a really professional setup in terms of the national teams for a period of time. But since then, that's fallen away. The visibility of the players has fallen away. The growth of the game has not really been there. And if you look by any kind of metrics, it's very hard to find a tangible result that you can say and point at and say, that was the legacy of London 2012. Did you, in the run-ups to 2012, do you think it started becoming apparent sort of pre-Olympics that there wasn't going to be the legacy that people were expecting or or was it really not until actually post-2012 uh, that it became clear that there wasn't going to be the legacy that people were expecting? There wasn't really legacy planning and you can argue whose fault that was. You could say, was it to do with British performance basketball as it was at the time? But then really they weren't supposed to create a legacy. They, their job was to create high performing teams. You know, they did their job. And as far as, you know, the men's team won a game, the women's team did well. So their boxes were ticked. If you look at the three slash four home nations, did you really see an extensive amount of planning for a hold on a minute? If the day after the games, we get lots of people knocking on the door of our clubs, are we ready for this? I didn't see that scheme that wasn't put in place. You know, if you look at, you know, the the league and Horik could capitalise on it. Well, I suppose they, they tried to jump on that bandwagon insofar as, you know, look, maybe looking for sponsors, etc. But, you know, the GB players by and large didn't play in the, the BBL and, and you know, later in the WBBL. So there wasn't really much for them to jump on top of it. But there wasn't really a plan for the sport to necessarily profit from the Olympics. Now, as we, as we know, there's been lots of plans to grow British basketball. 
none of them have really worked. Not the ones before 2012, not the ones afterwards. There's been grand strategies, but they've all been kicked into touch, thrown in a bin, parked in in the corner. So, you know, it's never been a sport that's been particularly good at creating a legacy out of anything. And so really, why should it have been any different from 2012 to any of those other cases? Do you think that um, British performance basketball being set up as a almost completely separate entity that pretty much operated in a silo was one of the reasons, as you said then, it wasn't their remit to create a legacy. You know, they were funded by UK Sport who, you know, had a no compromise approach. It was very much about winning medals and that's all that mattered. Um, But actually, yeah, by them being separate, then they don't have to be accountable to that. They don't, that's not their responsibility where if actually they, uh, let's say, had worked closer in conjunction with the home nations or the home nations had been involved in a more tangible way so that they could potentially tie into it to then do longer-term planning to try and create their legacy, that would have changed things? If you look at the really good basketball federations, and let's, let's, take, let's leave the US side of this, and let's always take the examples of Spain and France and Italy, these things are integrated. You know, the leagues may operate semi-autonomously at the professional level, but the federation will run the national teams, oversees the sport, has a very holistic view and probably a strategy for how they want to develop the game. So the national team will fit into that. You know, you, you go to Spain, you see the national team on posters. You know, these are the role models that are created, but there is a direct link towards the grassroots development. Everyone's vaguely on the same page for that. Same in France, same in Italy, same in Germany. We never had that. We didn't have that structure. We still don't have that structure. Here we are, you know, nine years on. That that unity of purpose has always been lacking. And therefore, if you were asking British performance basketball to, to create that, it wasn't there. It was never set up for that. And it, it's a real deficit. And it's, did it hinder creating something out of the game, the long-term benefit? Of course it did. But you also have to look at UK sports strategy at the time. And even now, probably it's slightly changing at present, but you know, in recent years, it's been about elite performance. There's, there's never been that direct link to, to grassroots. I, don't, I think sometimes we overblow the effect and the cause and effect of one against the other. But certainly the way it was set up at that time, it made it immensely difficult to try and create something that was going to come out of the games and, and benefit everyone afterwards. Obviously, the UK sport funding was was sort of, um, it was very clear what it needed to be spent on. And there was a clear remit about what it could and couldn't be spent on. But do you think it's fair to say that, uh, what you know, one of the criticisms of British basketball historically has always been the fact that they weren't able to raise other sources of revenue and come up with commercial streams of income, which obviously if they were able to do that, you wouldn't have been held to the same standards of how that money could be spent and you could have options to potentially do more um, longer term planning legacy things or, or whatever. Like, do you think it's fair to say that British basketball failed on that count of finding other sources of income to um, potentially do things that were planning things longer term? Let's face it, the, there was a gravy train leading up to 2012 when there was, there was lavish funding from the lottery, from, from government. You probably didn't need to find huge amounts of, of money there. They got a great sponsorship deal with, with Standard Life. You know, that was the best they've ever had. So you know, there was a certain amount of, of commercial benefit from that, but it wasn't sustained. And, you know, you need to, you need to, have that commercial aspect to it all. You know, the, you know, there's there's not really been a national team sponsor since since 2013, and you know, 
all those things come to back to that strategy for the sport. You know, if if you want to if you want to monetize popularity, if you want to monetize the kids playing in the playground, all the way up to an NBA player turning out for your national team, you need to have something to offer, and you need to have a channel by which, if you are signing on as a sponsor, you get value from that. And we don't have the structure in place to deliver for those sponsors. You know, there, if you if you brought everything together, there's not the package, there's not the database, there's not the the I guess the the knowledge base of what it takes to deliver a return on investment to someone coming in from the outside. So, you know, I th- I think it was there a platform there to to kickstart that that was lost yes there was but really outside of the great britain teams there wasn't the professional setup to to bounce on from that and make a long-term play that could have made the sport more self-sustainable one of the other things that uh, has arisen in conversations that i've had around this is that um people forget that obviously the great britain teams were not given their automatic host spot uh, and you know, from FIBA's standpoint, FIBA's view on it was that they were trying to help British basketball grow and improve, but they were constantly moving the goalposts. You know, first saying they need to um, qualify for Division A, Division A, then qualify for Eurobasket, and then have strong performances at Eurobasket. Uh, almost ironically, one of the things that's been said is that actually that meant that the focus very much within the organisation was actually just qualifying for the Olympics. It was always in the run-up to, because I don't think the place wasn't uh, confirmed until 2011, right? Um, so that almost became the focus, like, and there wasn't uh, time, energy, resource to put into other things. Do you think that's an excuse or do you think that's a fair comment? I think it's an excuse in the sense of, why can't you have both? You know, the fact is, you know, you're, the national team was playing maximum maybe 10 games in a summertime to qualify like occasionally a few others here and there but you know, that, that's not a huge period of time in the course of a year if you've got an organization there yeah you, your focus might be for those short bursts of time on results on the court but you can put a structure around that everyone else does it why can't we do it even now okay we have more international games throughout the year but we still don't have that overall look of you know how, how does this look and feel what's our what's our message what's our what's our strategy what are we about as a sport you know there was a little bit of a unity of purpose around 2012 because i think the one thing fiba did well was standing back and saying hold on we've got all these camps we want you all to work together you know, you, you all have to get on board you all have to you know sign up for a gb team a single federation I understand what FIBA were trying to do in that. They were, you know, were trying to hold the carrot and the stick and, and push people along. And there was a brief moment, I think, where we saw that unity of purpose. And you know, there was some reasonable things come out of that. But afterwards, it's, you know, it, has that regress? Probably, yeah. You know, are we back? Are we any better off than we were in 2006 when the GB teams came together? Probably from a performance point of view. But off the court, yeah, we can say the BBL is probably in a better state than it was back then. But as a as a strategy, as a as a unity of purpose, as a sport, are we really any better off? Maybe not. Do you think um, mistakes were made when it came to hiring? Um, you know, all of the sort of 
administrative, not administrative, the, the sort of the performance roles were very much um, in the run up to 2012 were external to, you know, what people wouldn't consider as lifers uh, within sort of British basketball. Um, and then even from, from a, from a coaching standpoint, like one of the things that a lot of coaches always say is that the lack of a, on the men's side, especially like the lack of a, a British a male coach on, on the bench, um, really impacted the legacy in terms of not having the knowledge then to, or the experience to then be able to pass on afterwards. And of course, what we, what we saw happen is that when the Olympics finished, uh, after 2012, 2013, it was literally almost like a, a new organization came in, uh, everyone, it almost the entire organization cleared house and there was a completely fresh start. Like, do you think that could have been overcome by, uh, you know, potentially hiring people from within the game rather than people external? Or do you think that, you know, when you're talking about um, sort of British basketball uh, personnel, there wasn't the people with that experience um, to potentially hold those positions and, and, uh, and have success? There was certainly a lack of succession planning in terms of what would happen to coaching staffs after 2012. But I think that's not unique to British basketball. You know, you look at you know, a football club or most national teams, there, there isn't really a next person in line. I mean, yes, some federations will have an idea of who their next coach will be. You, but it's, it's, not, it's not something that I think was a deficit for British basketball. Would it have been good? Absolutely. You know, it, I think you, know, you look at the coaches who were on Tom Maurer's benches, you know, then were able to go on and take that experience. And you look at, you look at the bench at the Olympics. I mean, we had two great coaches, Chris, Chris Finch and Nate Nurse, who knew what they were going to become. And they came out of this country. We can kind of claim those around if we're being honest about it. But would it have been better if you had Tim Lewis, Tony Garbolotto, other people who were in and around the programme, but maybe a bit more intrinsically involved to create the next national team coach and have that continuity going forward yeah it would have been but then you look at who they got after Finch they got Joe Pronte who had a terrific resume so I don't think I think yes we need to do a better job in this country let's everyone knows you need to, we need to be better at creating high level coaches who know what what it takes to be at the international level but I think when you're trying to win and you're trying to win at Olympics and you've got good coaches in charge, it's not necessarily what you're thinking of is the next person in line. When you talk about the sort of the uh, tangible legacy, one of the few things that we can point to is obviously the Copper Box Arena, uh, which was the handball arena at the Olympics and now has become the home of the London Lions. And of course, GB have played a few games there. Do you feel like... Um, that's something that has made a difference to the game? Like, Do you feel like that has been a big asset and obviously is a direct result of the Olympics or do you think that actually uh, it hasn't made that much of a difference? It gave London Lions a home. So we could say that's that's the positive point is that there was a, was a venue that was ready-made for basketball. I mean, it's ideal you know, for a BBL franchise and when the, you know, the league looking to make a better impact in London that that was a great venue for it um, but I think if you look more broadly at the Olympic Park I mean most of those venues obviously were disposable um, the Olympic Stadium itself we've seen the disaster that it's been in terms of a legacy you know that athletics has been shunted out in the cold you know, almost completely it's really just become West Ham Stadium with a a few other token events during the summer. You look at 
yeah, the swimming centre is there and it's great and that's that's one of the best you know, legacies of on the park. You know, the the Velodrome's terrific there. Cover box is a multi-sport arena. It's 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 a, it's a glorified leisure centre. It's great that it's there, but it's not home for basketball. Mm. So, did the park really create anything beyond having somewhere for London Lions to move into? Not really. So, knowing what you know now, and knowing kind of how it's all panned out, like if you were to go back, um, let's say 2006, when when British basketball was being formed, and you were able to sort of advise um, and and suggest what needs to be done to ensure that a legacy uh, for basketball exists after after 2012. What do you think would be the key things uh, that you would be saying? I think if I was FIBA, I would have gone one stage further and said, not just do you have to unify national teams, you have to have a proper federation. And a proper federation that's locked in and that is in charge of the game. And I know that there is a controversy whether you abolish the home nations, whether they have to retain powers. I'm in the camp of there's no need for them. We didn't need that. You know, if you really wanted to have that unity of purpose coming out of the Olympics, that was the time to do it. And we've seen the infighting, we've seen the politics that's happened since then. We don't. We still don't have that one voice. We've got you know, three voices, four voices, five voices. If you want to throw the leagues in as well, it wasn't there. So I think if I was FIBA, I would have thrown that condition in and been much more strict and tried to use the momentum of the Olympics to just to bring the sport together because that's always been the issue. I think from a playing point of view, I think the disappointment, the biggest disappointment for me coming out of London 2012 is that the men's team in particular fell apart not the, you know, the coaches moved on fine they you know they built their careers and we've seen what Finch and Nurse have done fair play to them I would have loved to have seen those players commit the following summer go to that Eurobasket in 2013 with that same roster okay a couple of guys like Robert Archibald sadly missed retired but I'd like to have seen what that group could have done because I think that would have been a really special group and taking the experience in the Olympics and if you speak to some of that team, it was because of the organisation. You know, the walls always talked about, you know, the insurance, but just the strategy didn't feel it was really the, any you know, professional setup anymore. But I think that could have been the real thing that benefited the sport. If that team had gone on the next year to Slovenia, done well, I think that could have been a top four team. That would have been a real legacy coming out of London on the playing side. And I, just as a basketball fan, we'd all have loved to have seen that. And it was a shame that London was the end of the road for so many of those players who were probably part of the, the best generation that we've had and may have for some time to come. That would have been nice. But again, like so many things, we wanted that after 2012 and it never happened. It's a perfect place to leave it. Mark, thank you so much for taking time pleasure 
And that wraps it up. That is our special 100th episode Olympic legacy, uh, looking at the London 2012 Olympic basketball legacy. Definitely let me know what you think. uh, And let me know what you think of the format as well. If you do want to see a part two uh, where we speak to other people, uh, for example, Chris Spice, uh, who was the head of performance, performance director for the British Basketball uh, Federation, someone I've been trying to speak to for a while. Uh, The likes of Chris Finch, uh, the likes of Vanessa Ellis, Damian Jennings. These are all people that I want to speak to. as a potential part two follow-up, uh, doing a deep dive into the Olympic of basketball legacy. But yeah, give me your feedback. Let me know what you think. Uh, that was episode 100. Uh, I'll be back next week with our regular programming with a guest. Um, I will speak to you then. Psst. Hey, podcast listener. But you weren't expecting to hear from me again. Now that you've listened to the show, please take two seconds to take your podcast player out of your pocket and give us a rating and review on iTunes. It would be massively appreciated and goes a long way in helping us spread this content far and wide. Literally take your phone out of your pocket right now, uh, open up your podcast player, go to the Hoops Fix podcast, you'll see the option to leave a rating and review. Drop us a five star if you love it. And uh, if you could take two seconds just to write a review as well, it would be massively, massively appreciated. Thank you and speak to you next week. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.